the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Streaker, Spreaker, whatever the heck of it. Oh, also, we are now officially up on iHeartRadio, so just go to iHeart, just key in Southern Sense Talk, and you'll see my smiling face and catch our episodes. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, the, I should say Radio Chickadee, so I don't get sued for trademark infringement, <laughs> along with my guest co-host, Florida State Senator Mike Hill. Curtis is up with family business, so Mike has agreed to join us. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Hello, Annie. I'm doing great. It's my honor and pleasure to join you today. It is always so much fun to have you with us. You know, i got to say something. There is a troll in my computer system. I've got literally five computers. I went to all five of them to look for your picture. Now, you've been on the show numerous times. I've always had your picture up. I could not find your smiling face on any of my computers. There is a troll in my system. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> i, I got to tell you. Man, when you get attacked, you get attacked in every which way sideways, you know, Mike. Well, I'll tell you what, it might be best you don't have my picture there, Annie. Um, my picture is a great bug repellent, so you're probably okay not having it. <laughs> Man, I want to welcome everyone that's listening up on Facebook or watching on Facebook, as well as those who are here on Blog Talk Radio and Rio Stream. Um, I was really surprised to find that we are still, uh, we're carried in so many different places, and surprisingly, iHeartRadio picked me up. So that is a great honor. Um, for those that have been listening to the Annie and Yaga Nani saga of all that has been following us this year, uh, we had a little icing on the cake when I was the victim of a hit-and-run accident. Uh, matter of fact, it was a head-on hit-and-run accident. And, Mike, you're in the insurance business. And you know when there's a car accident, there's always it takes time before you cut the check to the client and this and that. And usually it's like two weeks down the road. It accident happened on Monday. They cut the check yesterday. Uh, wow. It turns out the guy that hit me, the guy that hit me, has a rap sheet that is an arm long, with two arrests just this year, one for DUI. So he was on a suspended license. Well, he was driving his girlfriend's car. So I'm going to be going after them, and they're going to be paying for a new car because the car was totaled. I tell you, Mike, if you saw what it looked like, you would shake your head and wonder how I walked away, how I wasn't hurt any worse than I am. I'm achy, nothing major, but oh my God, Mike. I, I to this, Even at this moment, I can still see the car coming straight at me. And I'm telling you, the state trooper agrees with me. I, I honestly think he aimed at my car. I got hit wow. by a Cadillac Escalade pick-me-up truck and I was driving a little tiny Honda, so my car lost. <laughs> so, but I'm here. Well, thank goodness I for seatbelts and airbags. The airbag did not deploy because there's a certain bar that if, if, if the impact is on that bar, then the airbag deploys. But he pushed the axle. He bent the frame. Um, he did just about everything else but deploy my airbag, which was weird. Wow. 
<laughs> that is the Indian Yanni saga <laughs> as of today. Anyway, Mike, you know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And it's going to be a little bit of a twofold. Um, it's also remembering Memorial Day, which is Monday. But today's dedication is going to be going out to a New York State Police Trooper, Investigator Ryan D. Fortini. His end of watch was January 1st of 2020, making him the first line-of-duty death uh, with a law enforcement. And this is from the Boston Globe as I pull up the dedication video. A New York State trooper who grew up in Burlington, Mass., and succumbed on January 1 to cancer linked to the 9-11 attacks will be laid to re- was laid to rest. A funeral mass was said for retired trooper Ryan Dan Fortini, 42, at St. Margaret's Church in Burlington. His ob- obituary posted on the website of the Edward B. Sullivan Funeral Home. A burial followed at Lakeside Cemetery in Wakefield. Matter of fact, I didn't live too far away from that area in Wakefield. Fortini a 1995 graduate of Burlington High School who later graduated from UMass Lowell passed away on January 1, 2020 from illnesses stemming from his assignment to the World Trade Center following the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. His obituary read, Following the events of 9-11, investigator Ryan Fortini was assigned to aid with the search and recovery efforts in New York City as part of the New York State Police detail. Ryan entered into retirement with the New York State Police after 16 years of service on July 15, 2015, because of his worsening illness. Fortini relished his job as a trooper. Ryan was proud to serve as a first responder during 9-11 and as New York State trooper for many years. He fought like a warrior and died a hero. Ryan never had regrets. He would do it all over again if he had to. He was also devoted to family. Ryan was very close to his parents and talked to them both on a daily basis. He would have done anything for his parents whom he loved dearly. When Ryan became ill, his mother was by his side every day during his treatments. Ryan and his mom shared a love of travel, good food, and the perfect paint color. Ryan and his dad shared quiet moments and a deep understanding and appreciation of each other that outsiders never understood. Fortini leaves his parents, Edwin and Doreen Fortini of Burlington, his fiancée, Caitlin McGuire of Selbyville, Delaware, his brother, Matthew Fortini, and Matthew's wife, Mila of Derry, New Hampshire. His sister Joy Wilson and her husband Brian of Bedford, Mass., and several nieces and nephews, according to a death notice that ran in the Boston Globe. Ryan made us all proud, his obituary said. We will always love him and honor him and his ultimate sacrifice. A number of people posted messages of condolences on the funeral home's website, including a woman who identified herself only as Alana. It has been many moons since we have seen each other, she wrote. Ryan certainly became a well-respected superhero. I've enjoyed reading the beautiful memories being shared. Till we meet again. Love you, cousin. 
Another poster, Dr. John J. Caruso, Jr., praised Fortini for his service. I do not know Investigator Fortini personally, but my good friend Investigator Mentillo spoke at all the time about him in the most positive way that I feel as if I have known him, Caruso wrote. I am sure by knowing the kind of person that Investigator Mentillo is, that Investigator Fortini was of the highest integrity and moral, moral fiber. Rest in peace, sir. On January 1, 2020, the first day of the new year, Investigator Ryan D. Fortini became the first line-of-duty death for law enforcement officers of the year. While it is an honor to give your life in service to others, risking it all to save the lives of many, being on the list of lost officers is always a tragedy for all involved. Investigator Fortini worked for the New York State Police Department and was one of the first responders on site during the attacks of 9-11. When everyone was running away from danger, falling debris, explosions, and more, Investigator Fortini ran towards the danger, looking to see who he can assist and how he can help others. When the public needs help, it is the first responders who answer the call. First responders can come from a variety of fields of work, specialties, and backgrounds. Some are police, firefighters, doctors, and nurses. Some first responders are community members who volunteer their time to get training and take courses to be prepared to take care of their neighbors should anything ever happen. No matter their background or how they came to be a first responder, being first to answer calls for help in many situations can be dangerous. Responders can face serious long-term health effects from events such as large structural collapses. September 11 is one such example. There is evidence of respiratory effects, biological and chemical hazards. First responders also place themselves at physical risk. They can be seriously attacked by criminal suspects mentally ill individuals, people who are panicked during life-threatening emergencies. Responders can risk being exposed to blood-borne diseases such as HIV, hepatitis, and other illnesses, as they are the ones to respond to health-related epidemics. With so much at risk in every direction, what would make someone volunteer to become a first responder in the first place? They must have hearts too large to keep to themselves. So they share their love with the community around them. They protect all life and treat others with fairness and dignity. To be a first responder is to be an American hero. For investigator Ryan D. Fortini and many other first responders of 9-11 and their families, it has been goodbye far too soon. Fortini was 42 years of age. His worsening condition cost him the last of his days his enjoyment in life, and the work he loved. He was forced to retire early after only 16 years on the force at the age of 38. His family, the people who he gave his life for, his fellow officers and first responders will mourn his loss and celebrate the hero he was in life. Today's show is dedicated to investigator Ryan D. Fortini. Is also dedicated to all first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. 
We also dedicate this show, especially in light of upcoming Memorial Day on Monday, to our American heroes that serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into its glorious future. We dedicate this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
All right, and we are back. You are here listening to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Spreaker, if I can get my teeth in correctly, also up on iHeartRadio. Uh, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the Mixed Up Radio Chickadee, along with my guest co-host, Florida State Representative Mike Hill. You know, Mike, I, every time I start to type your name out in pushing the show today on the social networks, I kept wanting to put down Mike Hill's senator. Are you thinking about running maybe for the state senate? Cause I, I just kept on trying to write senator instead of representative. Are, are you saying that your keyboard is prophetic? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you never know, Annie. Uh, right now I'm actually running for re-election to the House seat. Um, but we'll see what the future holds about that Senate seat. <laughs> I put something in your head. <laughs> you know, we've got a lot going on on the show today, a lot of great guests. Uh, we have returning, she is such a little wallflower, and you really have to pull her out of her shell, retired U.S. Marine Corps Gunnery Sergeant Jesse James. Duff will be joining us at the start of the show. And then Michael J. LaPierre, he is running against Senator Lindsey Graham for his seat, and his campaign is starting to pick up momentum. So let's see if we can push him a little over the top, along with his campaign manager, Jim Evans. And then we've also got another congressional candidate for the seat out of Pennsylvania, Kathy Burnett for District 4. She'll be joining us. And then a dear friend of mine, Dr. Christina Jeffrey, she's got a new project she's working on called USAllegianceInstitute.org. Uh, she's a constitutional scholar, and she's, she's just a sweetheart. Uh, so, Mike, we got ourselves a really good show going on today. Sounds like a fantastic lineup you have there, Annie. Great job as usual. <laughs> now, you know, Mike, um, last week uh, Curtis and I were discussing what's going on in New York City. And for the longest time, New York City cops could not get the gear they required, the personal protection equipment. And it turns out that a um, the health commissioner, or Orias, uh, oh, God, am I going to mess up her last name again? Jeez, uh, what the heck is Barbat, Dr. Orias Barbat turned around and said she didn't, doesn't give a rat's ass about the cops. This is a Mayor de Blasio appointment, and she's not fired yet, but this is what she said. Can you believe that you have a health commissioner that says that the very first responders out there responding to the crisis of this virus, still out there on patrol, she doesn't care about at all? Now, I mean, they eventually got the equipment through various other uh, places and finally the health commissioner I mean even Trump made sure uh, equipment got to them but can, is that amazing Annie it seems that the state of New York and the city of New York have done everything wrong in responding to this COVID-19 virus and for that health official to make that statement is of course reprehensible but I would also say she was probably echoing Mayor de Blasio's sentiments. You know, he and law enforcement do not get along at all. And I've seen scenes where uh, they will turn their back on him at certain parades and so forth uh, 
uh, signaling their protest. So she was probably just saying what she may have heard uh, de Blasio say, and that's one reason why he appointed her. But they have done everything wrong. The number of death cases out of New York is exponentially higher than some other states, such as mine in Florida. I think as of this morning, we have just over 2,000 deaths. And I think uh, New York has over 45,000 or some crazy number like that. They have responded magnificently poorly with this entire COVID-19 virus. And absolutely, I completely agree with you. And placing the patients in nursing homes that were ill-equipped, didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the equipment, didn't have the facilities to handle these patients. And it, it, you, knowing full well when the virus broke out, the first thing they said is anyone over the age of 65 is susceptible to the virus. People under 65 are healthier and less likely. Or if you have an underlying condition where a younger person may end up in a nursing home. Um, I have a friend of mine. His son is has paralyzed and has been living in a nursing home for the last 20 years. And he would, he would be one susceptible to the virus. But the very people that they should be protecting are the ones that they did, failed to do. And, of course, I have a, a friend of mine, believe it or not, true story, he used to walk to school with me every day, carry my books, true story. Mikey, I'm talking about you at that. Not you, Mike Hill, but a different Mike. <laughs> Uh, he lost his father and his mother-in-law within two weeks of each other. And that's because New York State did not protect the most vulnerable citizens, the very people they swore an oath to protect. And it, it is reprehensible. And if you look at the Cuomo brothers up on TV on Andrew Cuomo's show laughing about it, about the virus, I mean... Uh, my poor mother is watching, was watching TV. She was just shaking her head. I mean, they are disgusting. I mean, it is the worst governor ever for the state of New York. And watch him try to run for president. That will be his qualification for being the worst governor in the state of New York. He'll probably run for president one day. Watch. Mark my words. Well, I, I think they're trying to set him up for that now, Annie, the way the press is fawning over him despite the missteps and miscalculations he has made with this uh, coronavirus. And that's not just my opinion. The numbers show that. And, and as you say, he was, instead of sending these uh, uh, people from the nursing homes to the hospitals to be treated, he was sending them back to the nursing homes where it spread like wildfire there. And unfortunately, a number of people were affected and a number of people died because of his poor decisions. But if you turn on MSNBC or CNN or any of the other uh, mainstream media TV channels, you'll see them uh, with uh, Governor Cuomo on there and they are just praising him and giving him all kinds of accolades which are undeserved. And instead, when you have governors um, like our governor, Ron DeSantis from Florida, who is taking some measured steps which have been effective, and um, he gets criticized instead for having only 2,000 deaths, um, less than 
5% of what they have in New York. Well, I'm going to reach out and call out over air right now to my fellow NYPD officers. Get a hold of the PBA office and tell Patty Lynch to call into the show. Tell them to call the number, 917-889-3675. Patty, you, he's, he's a friend of mine. I work, came out of the same command. We worked together. He wrote an excellent op-ed piece um, that appeared online at the Empire Report where he called for Commissioner Barbeau to resign. He's calling on de Blasio to fire her. I mean, Patty, you are doing a fantastic job protecting the cops. I mean, you've gone in there with your hands tied with de Blasio. Uh, but keep it up, Patty. You, you, you have our support. So, Patty, if, you, if anyone in the PBA office is listening, tell them, tell them, pick up the phone and call Annie. Oh, man, it's, it's what these guys are doing. I, I can't imagine being a cop on the streets in New York under these conditions. It is horrific. You know, prior to the outbreak, they were having water dumped on them and some of the stuff that was going on prior. And they had no support from de Blasio. They handcuffed the cops and didn't let them to do their job. And now they're out there not only helping to fight the virus, but now all these criminals that have been let out of jail because of the alleged viral infections in the prisons and the policies where it's no bail. So these guys are going back out and committing more crimes and new crimes. And it's like it's a revolving door. The cops go lock them up. And then five minutes later, they're let go and back on the street and committing more crimes. It's, it's, New York State is is falling apart. And what what is obvious, uh, uh, Annie? And, and let me correct myself, please. I said that the total number of deaths in New York was forty five thousand. It's actually twenty eight thousand four hundred and eighty. Um, still, that is way higher than Florida, which is at two thousand. And in fact, when you look at those states which are run by Democrat administrations, they have a total of 70,000 deaths due to COVID-19 as of May 19th. You add up all those in Republican-run states, the total deaths are 9,107. So those states which... Um, enforce these draconian lockdown measures, including not being able to go to church and making the wrong decisions of releasing, as you just said, Annie, releasing prisoners out of prison so they won't catch COVID-19. They release them out of prisons where there may have been an outbreak, but yet they will arrest a pastor for opening his church and put him in jail. Annie, tell me, how does that make any sense? It makes absolutely no sense. And we're going to ask that very same question from our guest. Mike, you got to understand, she really is a little bit of a shy individual, a little bit of a wallflower. Retired USMC Gunnery Sergeant Jesse Jane Duff. Good afternoon, Jesse. Welcome back. Good afternoon. Exciting to be here. I mean, I, we, it was great to see that the president said that he wants the churches open this weekend. I'm just 
I, I'm just thrilled that we're making headway here. I think that we've got to quit depending upon the government to give us permission, and the people need to just take back their freedom. And if you have enough people taking back their freedom, no court system can handle trying to fine thousands upon thousands of people. It's frivolous. And I think the people have to stand up for their rights. And those who try to tell me that I'm impeding upon their rights by going out in public have lost their minds. Simply put, they've lost their minds. More people have died probably from the flu, particularly children this year, and yet we shut down the schools and disabled all of the education systems for the Americans' children. America's children. I just can't believe how we all sat back and allowed this to happen. We will never, we, if you lose your freedom, you will never get it back. I mean, you, you can vote in communism, you can vote in socialism, but you will have to shoot your way out of it. So I, I dare to tell the American public they better be cautious in trying to comply with something that is so irrational at this level going into Memorial Day weekend after we were assured it was just three weeks or four weeks. You know, what's, what's really odd is that the logic that the left has uh, New York State, oh, you can go swimming on the beach, but you can't walk on the sand. And yet Cuomo, in a public statement, admitted that over 75% of the infections of COVID viruses occurred with people shut in their own homes. It didn't occur to people that went outside of their homes, went out to do yard work or being a licensed landscaper. It didn't occur in those individuals that went jogging or biking or just sitting in the getting a little sun out there, it doesn't occur to those people, but anyone who's locked in a tight contained area, like apartment buildings where it could be spread through the ventilation or you get on the elevator after someone else and end up, you know, catching it. You're in a confined place like a, a building. You have a greater possibility of catching the virus. So what the heck is the logic of a lockdown when he admits it himself? Well, what about the homes that they forced the elderly to go into? What about those that were elderly and could not escape? How how was it that in Pennsylvania, I can't remember the position of the public official, who ensured that her mother was taken out of the elderly home and put into a hotel, but then insisted upon all those who had experienced uh, these symptoms be put that these homes had to accept more elderly people. It became a petri dish. The percent, I think over 5,000 deaths alone have been tied to those that were in the elder care situations. And even Janice Dean last night, if anybody saw her on Tucker Carlson, didn't lose one member of her family. She lost two. And they weren't even in the same facility together. She said her mother-in-law was got sick in the, the facility she was in, and then they put her in a hospital where she died. So her number won't even be counted as having been uh, contracted in a home for elderly people. Uh, her father-in-law also died. They got a phone call. He wasn't feeling well. Three hours later, he was dead. They haven't been able to have a funeral for the families. They haven't been able to have the proper goodbyes. These were elderly people, but it doesn't mean their life should have been cut short. Janice is not an old woman. 
so I dare to say her in-laws were not what we would call frail and falling apart. One was in that facility for rehab. So, I mean, it's just horrible what Governor Cuomo and many other of the Democratic governors have done. I gather it happened in several locations throughout this country. And yet the left has attacked Georgia for opening up early, and yet their death rate has not accelerated. It has not gone for uh, has not gone into a rampant uh, contagious factor. Florida has had far less deaths than New York, and yet many New Yorkers fled to Florida. Florida has been able to open. Oh, did we lose Jesse? I think we lost Jesse. Well, Florida... And Stephen's on such a roll. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I told you she's a little wallflower. Let's hope she calls (laughs) back in because we we seem to have lost her. But she was making some very good points, Annie. Um, She was right on target with everything that she was saying. And one comment that she said at the very beginning was she was surprised at how um, readily... So many Americans gave up their constitutional liberties because of, I would say, two things, fear and misinformation, fear that was being fueled by the mainstream media and also by those who were supposed to be giving us accurate information and were not. And that was Dr. Fauci and others who were using computer models which had the wrong um, uh, factors entered into it, which was telling us that over 2 million people were going to die in America. And we've just hit, I think they announced, 100,000 throughout the U.S., and President Trump has ordered flags to be uh, lowered to half-mass as a, a symbol of mourning because of those deaths from coronavirus. Well, Jesse is back. Jesse, <laughs> you were on a great roll, and unfortunately, your call dropped on us. Sorry about that. That's quite all right. It's uh, dramatic to see this. I'm not going to go after anybody who stands on the platform with President Trump. The left has uh, attacked this president unmercifully, and regardless of misinformation from Fauci or not. The fact is is that he is a renowned professional, and there have been comments made by him also, such as wearing a mask may make you feel better, but it's not actually going to prevent anything. He's made that clear. I like the people wearing these masks, and often we all know how many of them are even washing them, how of them are still touching their faces. You're not stopping anything if you're actually breathing in the same hot air on your face and then turn around and scratching your eyes and ears and doing everything else you shouldn't be doing. Honestly. At what point are we going to have our normal, not new normal, our normal? I, you know, it's to me, it's a matter of the president making these decisions that who on his team is giving him relevant and pertinent information. And uh, it's my role to ensure that I support this president because whether he's got good or bad guidance, he's a smart man who surrounds himself with multiple people who will challenge uh, each other and ensure that we get the best opportunity to accelerate and open up the country. People who are on the healthcare side, they're trying to have us move slowly. The president sees the ramifications of the economy if we continue to go at the snail's pace. We will create an economic travesty in this country, and we know this. So 
those on the left make me suspicious that they are actually rooting for that. And I use the word suspicious because I can't prove that they actually want the economy to collapse. It's just a matter of the way their actions give that impression. And impressions leave a reality for so many Americans. It's always the people that have a job that are saying, don't rush back out into society. It's always somebody, it's not the unemployed. It's not the person sitting there trying to raise their kids and homeschool them while they're juggling the job from home, which is next to impossible, as many people can uh, attest to. We're not all living in mansions where we can have our kids on one side and being taken care of by one parent. Many people are in one- and two-bedroom apartments trying to facilitate the homeschooling and their jobs. This is ridiculous. The pressure upon the American family, I dare to say, one of my friends said, you're either going to look pregnant or be pregnant by the time this is over. I would dare to say that is a funny remark, but it isn't funny because the fact is a lot of unintended consequences are happening now. As you said, people in apartment buildings going up and down on the elevators, sharing the same airspace. I fortunately got out of my apartment and came out to California because my mother had hurt her back. So I'm actually in a huge house right now looking after my 95-year-old parents with plenty of room and go in the backyard and get fresh air. And the only people who can make us sick of each other is ourselves, but we won't get sick. You know, it's funny because I'm taking care of my mother. She's going to be 88 next uh, in July, July 4th. My mom's an Independence Day baby, uh, so I understand where, where you're coming from. I don't have a tremendous house, but at least we got a nice yard and everything. We we get her outside into the fresh air almost every day, so I understand where you're coming from. And I'm not worried about a job because I'm retired, so I'm all I'm all right. But I, I when I drive around, I see business after business after business that the storefronts are empty. They're closed because they couldn't survive not having the tourism that we rely on. Your restaurants are closing. Nail salons are closing. You know, little mom-and-pop shops are closing because they can't survive. And the people they employ are now out of jobs. What are they going to do? And it's, it's, like you're right. It's such a burden on the American people. Sooner or later, the people are going to scream. Oh, they already are screaming. Open America back up. You know, for those that have lost their jobs and may not even recover to get them back, I would dare to say there's many, many companies out there that are going to be aggressively hiring because when there's a shortage on one end, there tends to be a balance and you can get a flow of jobs on another end because the supply and demand is still going to be there. The supply, the demand for product, the demand for services, the demand for restaurants, the demand for whatever socializing that people want is going to be there. I do, you know, I listen to Sean Hannity some nights and I'm often questioning where he's talking about going to baseball games with masks and drinking beer from a straw. I'm thinking, when are we going to stop acting as if we're afraid of our own shadow? People can die from the flu. How many other diseases are out there that we have no cure for, never will have a cure for, but yet we still function and we move on? You, I'm not discarding the threat that is here, but now that I think we are more aware than ever, people have, will be washing their hands. I'm going to tell you flat out, I have stood in restrooms before I've had to go do public speaking engagements to, to fix my hair and makeup, and I'm watching women 
not men, women walk out of those stalls over the age of 40, barely put the water over their fingertips and grab a paper towel, if that. How many stood there with soap and washed their hands? I could tell you it was probably one out of five. And I'm not kidding because I was getting ready to speak right before a luncheon. So everybody was running into the restroom before the luncheon started, and I was aghast at how few soaked up their hands. And I just sat there and thought to myself, had, had I not stood here and witnessed this with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. So I dare to say if women are doing that, men are doing it too. And everybody thinks, but I didn't touch anything besides the door, the handles, yourself. And this is why we <laughs> continually have colds and flu in our country because simple hand washing goes a long way. I haven't had the flu in years, but I'm very aware because I was raised by a mother who always told me to get my hands off of my face. It was a bad habit as a young girl, and she taught me, you don't touch your eyes, your nose, and your face. The unsanitary things we touch every single day. And anybody, and, and the hand sanitizers, give me a break. Wash your hands. Get that grime off. How many of us have gone out during the day, touched enough things, you go wash your hands, and you see the filth that goes into the sink, for goodness sake. But, I, you know, I digress here. I'm not going to lecture people. The fact <laughs> is is you have a responsibility. No, maybe I will. But let me take that back. So when you have a responsibility to be an adult, take care of yourself, take care of your family. If you're sick, stay home. Don't go out. It's that simple. And I'm not going to go to a baseball game if i got to wear a mask over my face. I practically pass out every time I wear one of those, and it's been proven not to be healthy for you to be inhaling recycling air. So my normal is the old normal. And let's get back to being <laughs> Americans who are free and not shoving our elderly into homes if they're sick. Let's take care of our families and let's do what we're supposed to do as responsible adults. Jesse, this is Representative Amen. Mike Hill. Um, let, let me ask you this question. Um, you served in the Marines. I had a son who also served in the Marines, infantry rifleman, and I served active duty Air Force, and so did my father. Now, we all set an oath to support, protect, and defend the Constitution. Jesse, let me ask you this, because I know you're familiar with the Constitution. Where does it say in the Constitution that the government has a responsibility to make sure that I don't get sick? <laughs> I don't think they use that language. <laughs> but nor do they have a responsibility in the Constitution to pay for your health care, nor do they have a responsibility to pay for your education. Actually, you're all, we're all recreate, created equal, and we are all given an opportunity, but we're never going to be guaranteed the same outcome. What it is is up to individual responsibility, and the more that we expect for the government to care for us, then the government owns us. You know, here's what it boils down to. You can have communism or socialism. You can vote it in, and that's what a lot of the people on the right are doing. A lot of the conservatives are doing it. Oh, they will take care of us. Many people we already know on the left have done it. And then the problem will be you'll never get those freedoms back. You could vote it in, but you will have to shoot your way out. 
and that's the reality. You're going to get to a point where you've empowered a government to tell you what you can and cannot do. You'll have people like, uh, what's her name, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of uh, Chicago, getting her hair cut while she's telling the rest of us not to. You'll have the politicians that stand there like Nancy Pelosi, who I swear used this. I'm sorry, this is going to sound awful. She just turned 80, and I swear she must have had her facelift or her Botox treatments or her fillers done because she looks like a conga drum now. I don't know what she's done to her face, but that woman doesn't look like she's even tried to gently age. I mean, at least I give some movie stars out there like Jane Fonda a hell of a lot of credit. She's aged with a lot of grace. She's done a few things here, but she's not trying to look like she belongs in, you know, being played by, uh, you know, in the I Love Lucy rerun with Ricky Ricardo. I mean, it's really uh, extraordinary to see Nancy Pelosi coming out there with this. I mean, any woman who's done skincare can look at that face and know, oh, my gosh, you went overboard. And it's tight, tight, tight. So good luck. She enjoyed that little uh, escapade she had where she was able to brag in front of humanity how much expensive ice cream she has in her $24,000 refrigerators. Meanwhile, there were people that didn't even know if they were going to get a paycheck, had to apply for food stamps the first time in their life, and potentially go to a shelter to uh, cover themselves because they couldn't even afford their housing anymore. I'm sorry. This is the elitist telling the common folk to eat cake, and in this case, fancy ice cream. Uh, you know, Americans, I'm sorry, get back out there. If all of us get arrested, they wouldn't have enough room in the jails for us. If every hairdresser in Texas had gone back to work, they wouldn't have had enough room to put them in jail. And what was the what was the peaceful protest that they sent a SWAT team out? Did any of you see that in Texas? I couldn't believe mm-hmm. it was Texas. I mean, the Alamo is rolling in its grave. Like, this is not what we died for. This is not what we fought for. And when I say we, not even me. I'm talking about those founding fathers that came here with plenty in their pockets and died poor men. I'm talking about those that died on the beaches of Normandy to those that raised the flag on Iwo Jima. Then we have people that went out there and sacrificed without even asking why. They basically took the freedom that we need and said, I'm going to, I'm going to stand for this. And only 1% of this country has ever served. And we're looking at of the few who have gotten out there and went ahead and lost a lot of their youth to sacrifice for this country or those who never became grandfathers and fathers or grandmothers and grandmothers because they died on some foreign shore where sand and fleas are. But when we sit here and cry about it, then what are we going to do about it? Because if we don't show up at the polls and vote and make sure that President Trump is reelected and November 4th, when we wake up in that morning, because I guarantee uh, they're going to contest it left, right, and center because they want their socialist puppet Biden up on there. But the fact is, is that nobody should look in the mirror and say they didn't do one more phone call. They didn't do one more radio interview. They didn't do what they were called to do. Every last one of us has to scream from the rafters. You have one person who is fighting for you, and that's Donald Trump. You may not always like how he says it. You may not even like what he says, but you know what? He's calling out the truth, and you know he's calling out the truth. And he's the only man brave enough to do it. Not Joe Biden, who's a man who said that it would be jungles if we did eradicate the uh, discrimination policies where we had the segregation policies. It didn't even want white children being on the buses with black children. 
This is a man that said it would be a jungle in our education system. This is a man that said Obama was clean and he was a dream candidate. Clean, call an African-American clean. It's basically as if Obama picked him so that he could get all the segregationists on board. Make sure he gets the white vote for all those guys and gals out there that didn't want the South to ever lose that battle. I'm sitting here aghast that it's 2020 and we have a segregationist as the man or a woman it could have been, but a man who was supporting segregation is on the ticket in 2020. Let that sink in, Democrats. <laughs> I told you, Jesse Shine. Well, what about his latest statement where he went on this uh, one uh, TV show up in New York and said, if you have a problem, figure out whether you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. He says that to a black host. Now, Mike, did you realize that you're no longer black? Are you aware of that? Suddenly now your skin color has just changed because you're, you are not for Biden. I, I, I'm shocked. I got the wrong picture up on the screen here. Well, when you have somebody who doesn't even understand what his next sentence means when he says it, uh, I just take that with a grain of salt. It doesn't even make any sense for him to say something like that that if a black person doesn't vote for me, then you're not really black. That doesn't even make sense. Um, I, I think what we are seeing is elder abuse from the Democrat Party who are putting forward a man that is so obvious that he has the early forms of dementia. Um, and, and that's not a joking matter. Uh, there are, he, he needs treatment and he needs to be protected. He does not need to be running for president of the United States. Um, Jesse, let me ask you this. You were selected to be on President Trump's 2020 campaign and to serve as his co-chair on the advisory board Veterans for Trump and the advisory board Women for Trump. How is that coming along? Oh, it's fabulous. I mean, I'm still, unfortunately, because of the virus, I had to cancel five trips that were going throughout the country from Nevada to Florida and Minnesota. Uh, however, I've been very blessed to be invited to many of their calls. Uh, we've had uh, the Trump war room calls where we've basically invigorated our vets across the country to call in and hear guest speakers. And we've also had calls where we've invigorated our folks that are throughout the United States that are making phone calls for Trump. We've got millions of people making phone calls on his behalf. Um, as for his comments today on the breakfast club, I will say this. I took his comments even more ridiculously that he thought by just showing up, he would get a trophy that by showing up. And if anybody's ever watched the breakfast club, which I have, I love the breakfast club. I don't always agree with their politics, but they articulate their positions very well. And they also give a substantive reason why they feel the way they feel. And sometimes feelings aren't important, but guess what? Feelings are important. And for him to go on there and literally try to Suggest that African Americans that don't support him aren't black. Well, if you if you don't support if you support Donald Trump, then you're not. You ain't. He said you ain't black. He used a vernacular as if he was trying to suddenly relate, and that is probably the first time I've ever heard him say that. And it goes gives me a throwback to when he said that they they want y'all back in chains when he was speaking to African-Americans, when I believe it was Mitt Romney running, it could have been McCain. I mean, those are the kinds of inflammatory remarks he makes that 
African Americans and all Americans should be offended by because it's a flashback to his true roots of doing the racial identity. What about his recent comments that poor kids are as smart as white kids? Poor kids are as smart as white kids. This tells you where his mindset already is, that black people are less than him and only black people can vote Democrat. He's already got everybody who is of a certain race or economic position to be in that Democratic uh, corner because Biden, the identity politics for so long that they expect all women to think one way and all African Americans. And I would say with Ayn Rand, when she said the greatest minority is the individual. Your individual rights are a minority right because they are uniquely yours. They are uniquely your thoughts, not based upon your gender or color. Your position and my position are not going to always be aligned, and other times they will. But I, I dare to say when he said that on one of the most popular shows out there in the African-American community, and I dare to say people like myself watch it because Charlemagne is a great interviewer. He is a smart man, and he does not do inflammatory rhetoric. He does talk about his community. And when Joe Biden literally shut the interview down with the excuse that his wife had to be on the air at 6 o'clock. I'm sorry, who's running for president? You are. Answer the question. But you got to get your wife in there, who you obviously thought was your sister in a previous presentation. I'm. This man has got marbles going on in his head. These continual flips of the tongue with racial overtones are no longer a coincidence. I could get it if it was a one-off. We know that people beat up President Trump continuously by taking his quote out of context on the Charlottesville scene. And if you read the whole context, he absolutely talks against racism, white extremism, those that are uh, against the minority rights that are so important to our country. But they take the one line that we're good people on both sides and then rationalize it into a racist statement against African-Americans. But yet they will not hold this man accountable for continual slips that are not being taken out of context. They're the entire context. It's not like there's a sentence after that that could put it in perspective. He says this stuff over and over and over again. I thought he was done for sure when he said poor kids were as smart as white kids. He was not even the nominee yet. And yet they anointed this fool, this fool. Clinton because they thought that was the best thing they got going. Democrats, you're the ones that want to throw the racial stone left and right. You're the ones that want to uh, throw the misogyny stone left and right. But then you put this guy up there as your nominee in 2020? I again say it. We have a segregationist running for the Democrat ticket. They should all bow their heads in shame. Well, Jesse, <laughs> Don't be so shy, Jess. Uh, listen, you know, Mike brought up a good point about you working on the Trump team because they're, you're working on a lot of the rallies that are online. Excuse me, I just got a tickle in my throat. <clears throat> and there's a new tr- Team Trump app that people can access. Tell us about that. 
Oh yes, if you want all things Trump, definitely download the app. Um, I don't, I can't give you the link over the, the. I'd have to look it up real quick. But you can go to, if you're on Twitter or if you're following uh, the team on Facebook. You go to at Team Trump on Twitter. The app will be posted there. You can go to at Team Trump on Facebook and Instagram. These are the campaign's official websites and uh, or social media. And you can also find it on their website at the. At the campaign website of www.donaldjtrump.com. You want to go to this because now you can get updates. You can see what the campaign is doing. You can see where the next rallies are. You can see the press. uh, You can see his uh, press conferences live. I mean, you can't bank on the media to air it, for goodness sake. You now have uh, CNN deliberately cutting away. Oh, my goodness, they'll attack him for not wearing a mask. And then as soon as the cameras are off, we see the reporters taking theirs off. It's just that these mass have just become the Me Too movement of I'm I'm pure, I'm clean. Me too, me too. I'm not causing the problem. Me too, me too. Everybody wants to just go along to get along, and that's how Lenin took over. <laughs> well, Jesse, thank you for joining us today. It's always so much fun to have you on there. You bring so much information. And as usual, I had all these things I wanted to go over with you, uh, like General Flynn, what's going on, uh, bringing back jobs to the United States with now medication being manufactured here in the United States and Trump setting up stockpiles of necessary medications. But I have, I can't touch half of it because you have so much more to say. <laughs> Well, I'll just say this about General Flynn. You know, they should be ashamed of themselves trying to take out a patriotic American, and he was the greatest threat to the Obama administration because they knew that with his former intelligence background, he would have uncovered the entire uh, surveillance they put on the Trump campaign, including General Flynn. He was a target for many reasons. He was a threat to their legacy. He would have disclosed all the nefarious activities. I dare to say he probably would have already figured out where they, what was it, 30, 80,000 emails that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, dis- uh, had managed to dispose of where they went, but he was a threat. And uh, we now will see justice at some point. They now are, re- the D.C. Circuit Court is now reviewing this judge, Judge Sullivan, who has had the audacity to still try the man and despite the charges being dropped by Department of Justice because he has his own agenda, obviously. So uh, General Flynn, I will say, is going to survive this and uh, will come back stronger and they, he will reinforce the old adage, which is hard to believe when you're being beat up, that which does not kill us make us stronger. Because he didn't sit back and complain about how he was being hit. He knew how to fight back. Well, Jesse, thank you so much. And there is a link to your website, Jesse Jane Duff, up on the show page so that when people are listening, they can click on and learn more about you and learn about your activities in the Trump campaign and all the interviews and fine interviews you do on other outlets besides ours. Thank you, Jesse, so much, and God bless you and Semper Fi, lady. Thank you, Senator Fi. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, and God bless the souls of those who had given their lives for our country so that we may be free. Thank you, Jesse. Amen. Jesse Jane Duff, check her out, jessejaneduff.com. We got our next candidate, and this is going to be fun. Uh, I'm going to say Mike to Mike Hill and Michael to Michael LaPierre. Welcome back, Michael LaPierre. Uh, you are running for Senate. You're chasing Lindsey Graham's seat, and people can find you at LaPierre for Senate. 
for Senate.com. Um, welcome aboard. Welcome back. Well, thank you so much. It's good to be here. And, 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 and I'm almost thinking that Lindsey Graham's starting to chase me. What do you think, Annie? I think you're getting some steam that built up here. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah, we, we are. We, we, uh, uh, we, are, we have a whole lot of momentum right now. Uh, I have just brought on um, not two, three, four weeks ago just an incredible uh, team uh, that has really ramped up uh, our presence all over the state. Uh, we, we are putting thousands and thousands of signs and door knockers, and, 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 and we've got uh, a Facebook presence like uh like you read about you know it, it's just so so here here's you know i'll give you one example in a seven-day period we had over thirty-three thousand video uh, views of of videos that we've done and and so it's 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 just gaining momentum uh and, and campaign statewide campaigns that that's what happens is that you work hard 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 and then there's a tipping point and when the tipping point happens you're still working as hard, but you almost it takes a life form of its own because of all of the momentum. And our tipping point happened. Uh, I was on a radio show you know, back a, a while ago, uh, a very conservative talk show in the upstate. And she said on, on the air uh, that she was voting for me. And when that happened, you know, it just broke loose. And so we're, we're real excited, as you can tell in my voice. Uh, we've got a lot of momentum right now. Well, when you were at our tea party meeting, our group just loved you. Uh, they were just so happy to see that there's someone out there besides Lindsey Graham. When Lindsey Graham first became senator, he seemed to be a rather conservative individual. And then he joined up with John McCain, and everything turned upside down. It's like, what happened to the senator we thought we elected? What happened to that conservative when you were running for office? You don't exist anymore. You're just a 100% rhino. And when Lindsey Graham and John McCain uh, turned around and told el-Sisi, the president of Egypt, that you must let the Muslim Brotherhood into government, you must let them out of prison. And then when he sat down and broke bread with the Muslim Brotherhood Mm. in the White House, our house, under President Obama, with President Obama, that was when he lost me 100%. I mean, Michael, I told you in the past that I've gone to note, literally nose to nose and toe to toe with Lindsey Graham and <laughs> had his staff start to move me out of the way because I was winning. He he had nothing to stand on when I debated him. And this was oh, yeah, a fundraiser, so I'm now persona non grata in his office now. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's interesting. And to back up, you know, I really enjoyed my time down there when I, I traveled down there to meet with you folks. I, I'm, I'm from a military family. I've uncles, Viet, two uncles in Vietnam, and and uh, other uncles that served. My dad served. My my uh, second son was an officer in Afghanistan, Simplify, and and so you know, I, I while I didn't serve. You know, this is how I serve my country right now. I am going to defeat Lindsey Graham. And, and I think that all of the Semper Fies and, and other branches, when I do it, uh, they are going to thank me because I am a veterans first kind of a guy. And, and that's when, when I think of national security and when I think of national defense, you know, a lot of people may they'll strategize, oh, we need to do this. The first thing on my list. The very first thing 
It's how do we take care of veterans? Because if we use that as the anchor, take care of our veterans, then all of the other you know, defense issues will fall into place. But if we leave the veterans until last, then I'll tell you what, none of the rest of it, to me, makes any sense. We've got to take care of our military and our veterans, and, uh, and, and that's what you know, I think is a strong, strong national defense policy. Well, you know, uh, Michael, this is Mike Hill. I'm sorry, Annie. Go, go ahead, oh, Annie. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. One of the things that you are a strong advocate for is the Second Amendment. And you notice that when gun control nuts go after our guns, the first group they target are veterans. So, you know, they, mm. they go hand in hand, Second Amendment and veterans. And am I correct, Michael? You are, and so veterans you know, get a, a bad rap, and we've got to separate. You know, what what they conflate is you know the mental health and the two A gun rights. And Lindsey Graham is all over uh, these these red flag laws. Every time there's a mass shooting, uh, Graham wants to talk about taking our guns, a backdoor way to take our guns, and and, and they and, and you know I've read the red flag laws. Uh, it, it infringes our second, our fourth, fifth, and 14th Amendment rights. It's, it infringes our due process. It, it infringes our property rights and our gun rights. We can never let that happen. Uh, and, and so they conflate the mental health issues with the gun rights, and they're two separate issues. I mean, I, I am all for, you know, reforming mental health and all that, but don't don't try to, you know, bring that over into the, you know, the freedom that we have through our 2A gun rights. I'm a constitutional carry guy. I mean, I'm, I'm out there, right? I, I believe that, you know, that concealed and open carry without permit, uh, I think, is a better way to go. And if you look at the, the states that have that, they are the safest states in our country. Uh, so we've, we've got to make sure that we can defend ourselves and our families, but also, uh, you know, God forbid, that the long and the intrusive arm of our government, we need to make sure that we have guns to defend ourselves from a tyrannical government. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm leading the charge, uh, the two-way charge in South Carolina. Uh, just before the COVID, I was traveling around to all the counties. We're trying to become, uh, all 46 counties, two-way sanctuary counties. Uh, and then we're going to put pressure on McMaster and the legislator to name us the first to a sanctuary state relative to our Second Amendment gun rights. So I'm, I'm leading the charge, and uh, you're right, Annie. I, I love my guns, and I am going to do everything I can to protect my Second Amendment rights. Well, it's funny. State Senator Tom Davis, who happens to be a friend of mine, I've known him for, oh, geez, almost 20 years, um, it was before our group at one point, the RT Party group, and we were discussing open carry. And he knew that, you know, I'm retired law enforcement. I have guns. Uh, he looks at me like, where do you hide it, Ann? And I said, well, that's why I want open carry. <laughs> so it's, it's, <laughs> have a, you know, women, it, it's harder to strap one on with a woman and have it concealed. Uh, it's a lot easier for a man. Uh, Mike Hill, go ahead with your question. I apologize for cutting you off. I did a Curtis on you. It's going to be a new oh, person. No, that, that's okay, off. It's going to be a Curtis. <laughs> Uh, um, Michael, this is Mike Hill. I'm a state representative in Florida, uh, District 1. That's in the panhandle, and Pensacola is probably the closest city uh, in my area. 
And Escambia County, which is which I represent, recently um, enacted a sanctuary city, or sanctuary county for the Second Amendment um, just a few months ago. So I want to encourage you to continue in that endeavor. But here's my question for you, Michael. You're the founder and president of the Christian Leadership Worldview. Um, tell, tell us and the listeners, what is that all about? Yes, yeah, so, so I believe um, in, in training our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You know, I, I, I have a, a Christian leadership worldview. We trained our children. We were a homeschool family, and we trained our children all the way through because we wanted to make sure that they were grounded in the principles of a faith-based doctrine, right? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, and I make no bones about that. And so when you go into, you know, that mindset and have a worldview that is Bible-based, that is value-based, that is virtue-based, that is spirit-based, compared to a secular worldview where it's all about atheism and relativism and, and all of the isms, um, we, we don't believe that's the right way to go because that, there's no hope in that secular worldview. Philosophical naturalism is not a, an ideology that espouses hope uh, in, in that shining city on the hill. Because, and, you, and you've seen it, quite frankly, and if I can just pivot and make the relationship here uh, with the, the Christian worldview uh, question, we've seen it in this coronavirus because all of the, those, the progressive liberals, many of which do not believe they are secularists and they believe in a secularist mindset and have a secularist worldview, therefore there is no hope, right? It's all here and now. So if it's all here and now, what do you do? You, you, you run quickly to shutting down our government, and, and, and it becomes all about saving lives at the, expense of, at the expense of our civil liberties and at the expense of uh, the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of property and mobility and those sorts of things. So, so I guess the point is, is that if we had done things in alignment with a Christian worldview – we, we appreciate life, and we, we appreciate well-being, and every person lost is a tragedy, uh, and we have compassion. However, we appreciate our civil liberties and the pursuit of happiness on equal terms. What the governors did, the secularists, they went right for the jugular, and they went right to the health. They forgot about our civil liberties. They forgot about our economic viability. That's where we went wrong. So if we had a Christian worldview, I think we would have been much slower to the draw, taken an incremental approach to you know, doing some things compared to going right for the jugular and shutting the whole country down. We're going we're gonna to peel this thing back. We're going to reopen our country, reopen our state. I think that the secular, they're going to they're gonna lose in the long run, uh, and we're going to win. Well, the penalization of churches for opening up, uh, I think it's backfired big time on these Democratic governors. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, when you start, if you want to fire up and, 
and, and I'm sensing it. I know, I know you, Anna, you're sensing it. There's something that God is doing right now. You know, there's a convergence. There's, a, there's different things that are happening. The long and intrusive arm of the government, you know, churches are, are being, you know, told to shut down. And people are not happy. They're fit to be tied. And I think what's going to happen, there's going to be an anti-incumbent, an anti-establishment fervor in a sentiment that is going to build and build and build. And you're going to see it not only in the primary. You're going to see it in the general. And, and I'm just praying that this is the beginning of some kind of spiritual revival in our country. You know, I could see God just laying the groundwork. And I, I've talked to other people that are a thousand times smarter than me. And I, and I just say, am I way off base here? Or are you sensing that God is ready to do something magnificent? And they said, Michael, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the same thing. There's something good is about ready to explode and, and, and so I'm, I'm just really excited to be a part of a campaign that has put, you know, a focus on virtue and a focus on religion uh, front and center in our campaign. Well, you know, as a Tea Party leader, I'm not giving a Tea Party, you know, endorsement to any candidate going into a primary. But as an individual and as a host of this show, I am going to tell you, Michael Lapierre, both my husband and I are voting for you in the June 9th primary. You got the uh, well, what a what a what a blessing! Thank you so much, Annie. That means a lot, uh, and and uh, your your team down there. I just uh, again couldn't say enough good things coming out of there. Uh, you know, my wife and I called my wife on the phone immediately and said, uh, "These these guys, military, and and they're just great people." So uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for that. And uh, yeah, we're, we're just you know it's it's one vote at a time. Uh, it's one vote at a time. If, if we and, and, and Jim you know, and I and, and, and Tom and Sarah, we believe if people will spend five minutes on my pledge to South Carolina at LaPierreForCenter.com, where the very first bullet point, honor Christ in everything you do. And then we talk about, you know, of course, you know, all of the other things that we need to do, term limits, and, and, and I want to donate a majority of the salary to charity and and, you know, just redefining what it means to be a senator. Redefine, get away from, you know, it, 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 it's Lindsey Graham, you know, it, it, it's too liberal, too long. You know, we, we the people, you know, are ready for change, and, and, and we've got to make sure that they go to my website and look at what we stand for. Because I, I know they'll, have, they'll be impacted. You, you have to be impacted in our strategic approach to governance. There's a Christian leadership worldview, and uh, it's a whole different ballgame. Well, one thing I want to mention, because this is what I went, one of the items I went nose to nose with with Lindsey Graham was that when he was running in the primary, and I think there was 12 people in that primary, um, it was a point where um, the, the, if there was a runoff coming out of the primary, the voting, the special election for, for that runoff was going to be two weeks after the original primary. Now, military needs 45 days. So by law, federal law states, you cannot have a runoff from a primary before 45 days because this is for hmm. a federal election. And at that point mm-hmm. in time, they set the date two weeks after the primary for the runoff. 
And I asked him why you're supposed to be pro-military. You are a judge advocate. You are in the Army. Uh, you're supposed to be very pro for veterans and for military. Why are you not complaining that the runoff is not 45 days after? It's 14 days after. And he said to me, oh, the military is going to get a special ballot different from everyone else's. So they have two choices. You can have choice A or choice B. So they get a chance to have a say in the runoff. And I said, what happens if neither candidate are in the runoff? Then they get no vote. He goes, well, this is the way it is. It's the way it's going to stay. That was his attitude. Wow. What do you think yeah, it, it, and so, yeah, so what I would say to that. You know, that is part of the elitist club. That's the part of the, the, the Lindsey Graham that we've all came to come to know and, and not like, is that I'm part of this elitist political club that we have a certain set of rules and, and, and don't mess with our rules, right? Because what, what that would have meant, Annie, is that he would have, got, have to gone and fought hard against the establishment uh, to make – you know, provisions for what you're talking about. And that's, that's where I'm different. Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not uh, emboldened or, or connected to lobbyists. I'm not connected to the establishment. I'm not a political elite. I'm a businessman. I'm a trained political strategist. I'm a trained uh, political scientist who went to an Ivy league school, got a 4.0 MBA, played professional baseball. I was a corporate executive I got a whole different approach than trying to cowtail to the political elite. I will be a statesman, but I guarantee you I will be a pit bull uh, in the Senate. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if, if you can have pit bull statesmen, but I'm sure I'm going to walk that line real, real hard. Michael, this is Representative Mike Hill again. Let me ask you this question. Um, uh, President Trump recently issued an executive order where all those temporary measures that were in place of deregulation during the uh, COVID virus, um, he said he's making them permanent now. Um, tell me your position on that. Do you agree with uh, deregulation he has done, and what has that effect been our, on our economy? Oh, boy, I, I am so in favor of, of deregulation. Uh, President Trump has done a masterful job, and he said early on that for every regulation we're going to peel back. I think it was, you know, two, and then it went to four, and then I heard, you know, as high as eight, and, and, and some articles even said 20, you know, that they were peeling back. Uh, so President Trump has been right on the money when it comes to just peeling back all of the red tape. And so there's two ways we can go uh, that President Trump, we could go the socialist Nancy Pelosi way where we give away everything and we steal and we rob from our children and our grandchildren and, and just give people stuff. Or we can do the right thing. We can create uh, or and let me say it this way. We can remove the barriers and uh, in, in, in what you're speaking to is excessive taxation, excessive red tape, and, and just really just tear down the walls of taxation and red tape and let the entrepreneurial spirit just unleash the un, 
the entrepreneurial spirit and the and and, and here's I would even make a, rec- a further recommendation besides the red tape and, and the deregulation that we take a look at the corporate tax rate for a period of time. So let's say we, would we go from 35 down to 20 and, and it might be 21 percent you know soon, but how about taking that tax rate you know down to I don't know zero for a period of time? Uh, how about instead of becoming the nanny state or the welfare state by giving people everything, why not just remove the barriers and, and then with all of the entrepreneurs, same thing. Let, let's figure out how to incentivize them to get real excited about getting back into the workforce. Because if I'm, an, if I'm a, a small businessman, which I am, I'm, a, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, I get, once I retired from the corporate world, I started a little uh, a business. You know, if, if I knew that every dollar that I was going to make, I was going to keep most of it, you think I'm going to fly high and I'm going to be excited? That's the way to go. It's not giving people stuff. It's not robbing from our children and our grandchildren. I think it's incentivizing people. It's removing barriers. And we do that, Donald Trump is going to get this, this economy right back where it was. And we're going to see 4 5 6% growth again. But we, we, we've got to go. And, and so the answer is absolutely keep doing it. Uh, President Trump, keep removing uh, the regulation and the barriers. Excuse me. Um, one of the things that you have uh, you spoken about is the educational system. And, you know, with the schools being closed, everyone now is doing the homeschooling. Uh, but one of the things I was looking at your statement on Ballotpedia about the schools, and you had said, advocate for an educational system that brings primary responsibility back to the state level through strategic initiatives, including vouchers, ESA accounts, tax credits, and private school choice. What about public school choice, allowing people to go to a public charter school or any other public school they feel is better for their child? Would you advocate for that also? Oh, absolutely. So, so here's the deal. Uh, I just, I was so excited. You know, my campaign team was so excited. We got endorsed by the United States Parents Involved in Education organization. You know, they made a press release and they said LaPierre is our candidate for the United States Senate. And so, so I am all about the parents directing the choices, whether it's, it's public school, private school, home school, you know, whatever it is, the parents must drive that decision. The parents know the individual and bents, right? The, the Word of God calls it bents. Their individual ways of learning and 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 things that that they like to do. Uh, so it's the parents that have to drive that decision, not the government. Oh no, we we get to get the government out of the way. Let the parents have the choices necessary to craft a quality education. And that's what we did. I, I, we, we, we had um, gifts, and my, my wife and I, you know, we, we know our gifts, but we also you know, supplemented what we were doing uh, at, a, at a local Christian school. Uh, and, and so we, we, we kind of had the best of both worlds. And, and so I would encourage any parent, craft a, a, an educational program, whatever it may be, the way that you think your child will learn the best. And then government, just get out of the way. Let the free market, you know, go to work. And, and what you know what you're going to see, Annie? You're going to see the public schools get better uh, because they're going to look over the, their shoulder and say, row, you know, we, 
you know, we've got all these other forms of education that are really, really working good, and we better get our act together. So uh, the free market, I think, will, will better – it'll help the public schools as well. Well, I want to give a shout-out to Sherry Few and her husband, Marty, and April Few, her daughter-in-law. Uh, she started that South Carolina PIE, South Carolina Pie, originally, and now has taken it to the national platform. You know, her husband, Marty, and I sat down and had quite a few drinks <laughs> a few times. Um, she's a lovely yeah, lady. good people good over friend. there. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yes, yes they are. So her website is uspie.org. So it's U.S. Parents Involved in Education.org, U.S. Pie. So people, check it out because she's out there fighting for the education of your kids. She started off with Common Core, and now she's just expanded. It's an awesome website. Give her some support because she is going to support Michael LaPierre. So let's pay it up. Yeah. Folks. Let's pay it up. <laughs> Has a good plug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that, and, and, and you may know also, Annie, another – you know, really, really a good driver of the U.S. Pie uh, is John L. Rains up in uh, the upstate. Uh, you, you may may be familiar. She, she's another, you know, really, really uh, just wonderful lady that is uh, involved in that whole effort. So uh, great organization, great people, uh, and they they know a very very you know just the depth of understanding in in the educational matters. Uh, I I'm so appreciate. Well, one of the things that you had that you said you were going to advocate for is to expose socialism in our system, in our government, and in our society. And to follow through on that one, you recently wrote an article called The COVID-19 Umbrella Model. That You wrote this back mm. in April, where you break down three areas, three critical components uh, to this umbrella. I, explain this to people so they understand the reaction to the COVID virus and ha- what you think should have constitutionally had happened. Yeah. And, and so it, it gets back to what I was mentioning earlier. So when I look at this, this at a high level as a trained strategist, I was, I was taught um, for 30 some odd years to boil things down in simple concepts, right? So, so you take the complexity of the COVID virus, and at a 30,000-foot level, you, you want to boil it down into just some simple concepts that give people a directional understanding of where they need to go. And so I, I looked at an umbrella, and, and the thought, and, and, I, and I just believe this is a God thing, you know, he, I, I had this thought of an umbrella, and, and then I, and I, and I'm thinking of the words, you know, the Declaration of Independence, and I'm thinking of the word, you know, the Constitution of the United States of America, and that umbrella is held high, and it's protecting us, and it's protecting, you know, the life and the liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and and so that is, you know, in simple terms, if we do that, we're gonna we're gonna be okay. We are gonna get through this. If we keep those three things in balance, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But, again, if we get too extreme on any one of those three and we, and, and we get way out of balance, that's, that's where the thing crumbles. And uh, so we've we got to get back in balance. And the umbrella model, uh, I talk about it all over the state. And, 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 by the way, I am hearing more people talk about the umbrella model. They they put their their own little twist on it now uh, and call it you know something else. Uh, 
but it's the same premise. You know, it, we just go back to the, the simplicity of what our founding fathers gave us. And when we make decisions and we build models and we think about this whole corona deal in simple terms and stay the course, uh, we're going to come on out on the other side a much better country. Well, uh, Michael Lapierre, we are being joined by your campaign manager, Jim Evans. Good afternoon, Jim. How are you today? Good afternoon, Annie. I'm just fine just listening to my candidate talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just to give a heads up, Jim Evans is also a former New Yorker who fled to the South. Jim, uh, we love to say this. I may not have been born in the South, but I got here as soon as I could, right? That's correct. That's correct. And further, uh, I was actually born and raised in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, amongst the Amish, very conservative area and all. Um, I, I did a tour of duty in New York uh, because I was there to, uh, pastoring a church in that area. And, but I got to the South as soon as I could. We love it here. We just love We've been here 15 years now in South Carolina and love it. Now, I, was, uh, uh, Michael, I, I was introduced how did... to Michael. Go ahead. I was going to ask Go Michael, ahead. how has Jim helped uh, get your campaign focused and bring it forward? What is what do the two of you concocting? Yeah, it, it, so so Jim uh, Jim really brings a, a depth of of understanding uh, in the, uh, the the communication in the relationship realm. Uh, he he is able to you know just interact with people on on a different plane where he can you know just convince people of the of the importance of our campaign and where we're going and and, and I've seen Jim in action and uh wow I, I I was thinking when I was the vice president of sales at a Fortune 500 company I I I this crossed my mind wow I wish I could have hired him back about 10 years ago <laughs> because uh he he does a real good job a uh, real good job with people, and uh, and as a former pastor, God has equipped him for for this moment in South Carolina politics. You know, win win lose or draw, we we are shaping the conversation. We're shaping the conversation all over the state, and we are having impact. And so that's exciting for us. And and Jim, um, you know, brought another member on uh, on the team, uh, Tom. Uh, who is just an expert in marketing, and uh, and, and, and we've got a, a former senator, Jim DeMint employee, who's the communications strategist uh, and, and director. So we, we've just got a fabulous team right now uh, that's challenging Graham uh, at every turn, and, uh, and, and it's very exciting. The way the convergence, of this, yeah, the convergence of this uh, campaign uh, – is really strange because Tom Dunn, young man he's been speaking about, was in my church like 30 years ago, and he's down here now in Pauley's Island. And I was uh, on the, I joined the Reopen South Carolina Facebook page, and I saw Tom endorse this candidate, this guy that was running against Graham. Well, I wanted to run somebody against Graham. I was 10 years younger. I'd have gone after him myself a few years ago, but uh, I, I thought, well, here goes another primary guy. And so I looked him up and checked all the boxes. I said, holy mackerel, this guy's a legitimate potential candidate. So I called him and said, I've, I've had experience. I ran a campaign against the majority leader of the New York State Assembly back in the day, been trained in the Washington Republican campaign school and, and under Newt Gingrich and GOPAC. And I've uh, been involved in very strong, proactive, uh, pro-life stuff. And 
been around the horn. And old, I'm an old guy. And uh, so I said to my wife, I said, this, this, guy, this guy has a chance. Most primary races uh, are people run their own campaign and they try to do their best. And that's why uh, most incumbents just brush them off. They don't really think about them even. And so I said, we can't let that happen. This guy has too good of credentials. He's, he has everything we need right now. And the environment and the atmosphere that's going on now, there's going to be upsets. Yesterday in United States, Jersey in Virginia, uh, a town there, uh, Staunton, Virginia, uh, has a very democratic, it's a democratic stronghold. That's what they called it. Yesterday, four Republicans won the four seats, three of which were formerly held by Democrats. Uh, it's just an upset, a total upset. And they, uh, it, it's that kind of year when um, the incumbents need to be watching out because they're going to be they're going to be taken out. And I really believe I'm not in this thing. I told, <laughs> I said to Michael when I first met him, I said, Michael, are you in a crusade or a campaign? But some people use primary races to crusade their platform. They want to say something to the people. They know they're not going to win. They don't plan on winning. And I don't have time to help someone crusade. But I do have time to help someone campaign. Michael said, I'm, I'm a campaigner. I want the job. I said, okay, then we're in. And we've been working uh, 12 and 17 hours a day every day. Uh, the, uh, the thing is looking tremendous right now uh, for, for a run. Now, are you going to be getting campaign uh, TV ads and radio ads out? We have radio ads running right now. Uh, we're, we're strategically holding our TV ads because uh, one thing you don't want to do in a primary is wake up your opponent too soon because he has a war chest. He has all kinds of lobby money and special interest money and, and uh, stuff. He has a war chest there. He's trying to save it up. He, he's crying poor man now because uh, – his Democratic opponent, he thinks it's going to be his Democratic opponent. It's really going to be ours but uh, because he has money. So he's crying to lose. If he finds out that he might lose the primary, he's going to have to roll his guns in. So we have a strategic plan for the last week before the election to plaster the state with, uh, with TV, too. But even now, TV is not what it used to be back when I ran even. Uh, right now, like my own children, you say cable them, they say what? They stream everything. They get their news on stream. All the, They don't even – the normal networks that you and I think of when we think of putting out a press release and all that aren't even watched by a large majority of people. So it doesn't have the same power that it used to have, but it's still important. And we, we have everything we have. We're pulling triggers on plans and strategies that we put in place along the way, understanding the wisdom of, of primary runs. One of the issues in primary runs, as you saw back in 2014, there's five primary candidates. Now, if I'm running against something, I'm trying to win something, and I have five guys all that want to target me, they're going to bleed votes off in, in various directions, and when they do that, uh, I'm going to probably win. And that's another thing that incumbents believe and, and think about. Well, this time we have three. Uh, we have one, uh, Duke uh, Buckner, who is basically a very conservative Christian young man, lawyer we don't need more lawyers up there but he's uh he's a decent guy uh however uh, he doesn't have a campaign going on like we do there's no way he's going to even maybe get 10 percent or something and then you have joe reynolds who's basically a democrat in, in republican clothing he's if you look at his issues and things he's going to do so he may get four percent i don't know what he'll get but 
what the thing is in this primary for those people who want to see a change and want to see Lindsey Graham replaced by a true conservative Republican, those two things are trash cans where you can put your votes if you want to. When you walk in the voting booth, you have two choices, really. Are you going to vote for Graham or are you going to vote for Michael Lapierre? Or do you decide, ah, I just throw my vote away. I'm going to throw it in the Buckner bucket or I'm going to throw it in the Reynolds bucket. Uh, they're trash cans because they're not going anywhere. All that you did was take a vote away from Graham's opponent, and you gave a vote to Lindsey Graham, basically, uh, even though it's off to the side. You wasted your vote if you go into either one of those two buckets. So primary races are uh, difficult because you've got other contenders in there. Uh, they're also better because it's easier to take an incumbent out in a primary than any other time. You can't take him out as a third-party candidate in a general election, generally speaking, unless something really weird has happened. Your time to take out an incumbent is in a primary race. Yeah, I'm just I'll, trying I'll, to uh, I'll... more of... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to inject a little a little humor uh, in uh, Graham's uh, so-called war chest. Uh, I was on a, a very <laughs> popular uh, uh, radio show, um, Bobby McLean, uh, in the upstate, 106.3. And, and we were talking about the war chest, and I said, well, you know, Graham doesn't spend any money in the primary uh, because he knows that it is, if his face is plastered all over the state in the primary, that he's going to galvanize the anti-Lindsay base to That's the point true. where he will lose, right? And, and when I said it, I, I called it reverse marketing. And, oh, Bobby, he just started laughing. He thought, he said, that is so true because, he, because you see no signs. You see no, you don't see anything from Graham because his, his strategists are telling him to lay low because of his negative approval. You know, he's got – 53, 55, you know, negative approval ratings where he's only got 38% approval. So this, it's, it's a problem. Think about this. A three-term senator can only you know, muster that level of approval. Uh, his strategists are saying don't even say a word in the primary. Just lay low. Uh, that's the best, you know, that's what they're telling him. So it's negative mark. It, it's, I call it reverse marketing. I, I hope that he spends the war chest. I really do because that helps my campaign. Well, you know, <laughs> you want proof of that. You want proof of that. Andy? go on his, uh, his Facebook page and, uh, he puts little plugs up there. He put up, uh, he put up the thing that he was sponsoring and wanting to have mail in votes. And he got crucified to such a degree that this is on his own page. These should be his followers. They're people that signed up to be on his page. He got so crucified, he took the ad down. And uh, I have, the next day, I've gone on there. The next day, I went on there, and, and I've been uh, networking with a, uh, a national strategist, and he, he's a big guy. He knows he knows politics inside now. And uh, he he said, well, they're just trolls. They're just people coming on. And it's the only thing that I had to differ with him on. He was smart on everything else. He's a type guy. Don't differ with him. He'll shut down. You won't get your information anymore. I don't differ with him. I had to differ there because when a troll is on your page, your your supporters defend you. You see a battle take place on the page. And uh, there's a battle. Uh, These people just keep going. There's no battle. These aren't trolls. These are his people that are fed up with him and they're, they they're putting out threats to him. One girl said, you're on thin ice with me. And I, I wrote back to her. I said, he, he fell through the ice. He's in the swamp. You need to vote for last year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that oh, is boy. too funny. 
buddy. See, that's that's that why funny. that's why I hired that's why I hired Jim. <laughs> well, hey, I have a question I, I, for you, Michael. This is yes, Representative sir. Florida Representative Mike Hill. You get elected. You're now the senator for uh, South Carolina. Who in the Senate can you see yourself aligning with? Uh, who would you see yourself joining uh, forces in a coalition with uh, to help President Trump? Oh, it, it, real, real clear. Rand, Rand Paul uh, is a is a rising star. Uh, you know, Trump Trump beat him up pretty good in the in the presidential uh, race, but uh, him and uh, Trump and, and Rand Paul are very, very tight. He relies on Rand, quite frankly, for. For good counsel, you know, no, no doubt that Senator Cruz and I uh, are going to have a lot in common. An- another guy that you know I, I hope does not go unnoticed, uh, and that's Senator Braun uh, from Indiana, and and I absolutely love that guy. He is he is a calm in the face of of a storm, and and what I like about him, he's a term limit guy. He's a, he's a guy that was a businessman. He never ran for public office, but he was a highly successful businessman like, like, like I am. And I have never run for public office. So Senator Braun uh, is another one that will be in that fold. Uh, and, and so those, those are the three. And, and, and Tim Scott, you know, a, a brother in Christ. Uh, and, and Tim and I, uh, I was up in his office, uh, oh, I can't remember now, a while ago. And uh, just interacting with uh, uh, his uh, chief of staff, and, and and I was doing a a presentation uh, uh, to uh, uh, it was about a Christian leadership worldview, and I and I wrote a book uh, called A Covenant. That was my fourth book, uh, Responsible Citizenship and Godly Conversation. So I I took the book, I boiled boiled it down to eight slides, uh, and and I gave that presentation. Uh, to a bunch of uh, representatives, and it was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, one of one of the um, one of the House members in South Carolina, Jeff Duncan. I, I was supposed to be a five-minute conversation, turned into a half an hour because he's taking notes, right? You know, I, I said it's the new frontier of Christian conservatism, and when I said that word, he you know, he head head went down and immediately started writing. So there is a there's a contingent of real conservative people out there. And, and while we may not agree on you know, word perfect, uh, most of, most of the issues we're in alignment and uh, I, I'm going to be able to fit in real well. And we are going to be able to collectively uh, move some, some, some legislation uh, that they would not have been able to do with Senator Graham, Senator Graham, as you know, uh, too liberal, too long, tries to play the fence on all of the issues, votes like a Democrat most of the time. And then he, so, so if we're honest in our evaluation, he votes, he's a four-year Democrat and a two-year quasi-Republican. So I, I'll give him the quasi only because he comes running right just before the election, like a, you know, like a whining puppy dog uh, to get reelected. But Lindsey Graham at his core is not a conservative, uh, and the people of South Carolina know that, and and that's why I'm getting I'm having so much success. So when when you if, if, and if I'll leave it here, if there was a storyboard, and you flash a picture of Jamie Harrison, and you, and you flash 
you know, a blue circle right next to his face, you know, representing the, demo, the, the socialist Democrats. Right inside that circle, you're going to see the word socialist. And then you're going to flash Lindsey Graham's mug, and, you, and you're going to have this, this purple circle, and you're going to have entrenched establishment rhino. And then you're going to have my, my photo, my mug, um, uh, and then you're going to have a red circle, true and consistent conservative. You know, that's what we represent. Uh, Senator Graham's going to lose. Uh, I am going to be the next senator from South Carolina, and we are going to make some incredible, incredible inroads in changing the dynamics of South Carolina politics. And I think that we're going to have a leadership role in, uh, across, across our country, quite frankly. You know, well, you know in, I think, in, uh, Lindsay, I was just going to mention, I think Lindsey Graham is also, uh, depending upon the open primaries that we have here, because, you know, we don't have party primaries, even though they may be called Republican primary, Democratic primary. People can cross over the aisle and vote in the opposing party's primary. And I think that's how he keeps on getting elected time after time. And conservatives and Republicans are pissed off. We want the primaries here in South Carolina closed. Party primaries are supposed yeah. to be party. Yeah. So go ahead, Jim. I'll, um, I lost my train. That's when you have an old person, too. I, I got listening to you, and I lost my train of thought. Uh, we, were, we were talking yeah, about the uh... – go ahead, Michael. No, I, I was just going to uh, jump in and, and, and save you. Uh, on the on the on the primaries, the open primaries. So so here's what's different, uh, Annie. Uh, in the past, the Democrats uh, never had a candidate that could raise any money. Uh, Jamie Harrison uh, has raised some money, so the Democrats feel like they have their candidate. And so generally, I would say there's there's always the possibility of the Democrats going over and voting for Graham. But I don't think it's, it's going to happen this time. I think that they're going to stay home because they feel comfortable that they have their own uh, candidate. Uh, and so I think you're going to be, in, in my estimation as a strategist and, and talking with a lot of smart people, uh, we think that we, we are going to have much less of that. They're going to stay home uh, in the Democrat side and not cross over uh, this time around. That, that's what we're hoping. Another angle to that strategy is the possible. The other another angle to that strategy is the possibility that uh, if I'm the Democrat and uh, I know that the Republicans aren't going to lose this state, they're going to jack, they're going to prop up Graham like crazy. It's going to be a head-on battle. And quite frankly, I don't see Jamie Harrison, as I've been studying him, as being that uh, passionate and, and motivated a candidate. They're going to try and get it campaign bought for him but there is a possibility that they're looking at and they would say let's take graham out and get some new guy these guys are just primary guys never been in office before we can easily take them out uh i hope they think that way i hope they come in and, and uh, try and make take graham out and hope they run against a novice because they've never run against a true red conservative republican in south carolina uh they're done it's, it's an over we got the, we got the campaign with uh, Michael Lapierre, and uh, when I hear people say so, so, we can't risk, we can't risk Michael Lapierre being our candidate in November, I say if you think you you're willing to risk, I feel personally as a citizen before this campaign ever started and before I became the campaign manager with Michael, I was concerned because 
I don't know that Graham can pull it off. There's enough people mad, and they wouldn't vote for a Democrat, but they're not going to come out and vote for him either. There, no, there's a big risk. At tracking, well, I was going to mention. Go ahead. I'm I've sorry. Been tracking the primaries. I was been tracking the primaries and the attendance. You know, Democrats pouring out compared to Republicans, and Republicans have been more than double the number in almost all the primary in primary states that have gone forward so far. Only in just very rare instances in certain primaries have I seen low Republican numbers. But overall, they have been coming out of the woodwork like I have not seen in years. So I, I agree with uh, Jim and Michael that th- this seat is yours for the taking. Here, here's, yeah. here's something yeah, we, you, may have, you may have known. This is, this is from a campaign strategist I've been networking with and stuff. He did a poll across America, and he was shocked. He's been polling and doing campaigns since back in the 60s. And uh, he said this year shocked him. Here are the five top reasons people are angry and want to go vote. Um, what do they see as a priority? Number one is the Democrat Party. He never saw a party put on that on a survey like that before, that this is what people want to deal with, the Democrat Party. Number two is the economy. Number three is China. Number four is government overreach. And number five is illegal aliens. And I also have Graham rights in any of those. He's, he's done for in all those things, but he votes for the Democrats half the time. Uh, he has no solutions, obviously, for the economy. Um, he, he just has no pull there. The people, that's why you're seeing the Democrats lose in Virginia. Uh, Democrats have put, they've poisoned themselves. And so I have no problem with November. Uh, when, when Michael wins the primary, he's a senator from South Carolina. And can you imagine South Carolina having Tim Scott and Michael Lapierre up there fighting for them together on the same page? They'll be on the same page. They'll be strong. Republican conservative senators for this state will it'll be a great thing it'll really be a great thing Mike Mike Hill jump in if you want oh no he yeah Jim Jim the the party you know why why it's number one um, there's such a concern uh, that we're headed to a socialist uh, orientation and, and and everyone is concerned that we're going to look just like Europe, and we we just can never ever let that happen. Um, and 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 I and I say it this way, and I and I use uh, uh, a picture again. I, I like to boil things down into simple you know things that we can relate to. Uh, a ladder with five rungs on the ladder. We have classical liberal. You know, like a Tippy O'Neill or, you know, just a, 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 a liberal Democrat that still plays in the right sandbox. Well, then you've got progressivism and progressivism is when you start to indoctrinate, when you start to intimidate, when you start to, you know, not, um, you know, you start to infringe gun rights and, and freedom of speech and, and freedom of religion. And, and you start to go after, you know, our Bill of Rights. And then you get to Democrat socialism uh, which we're about to step on, which Joe Biden um, in his, I think he's almost 80, has decided that you know he wants to step on the socialist, the Democrat socialist agenda, uh, which is just pure, pure evil. Uh, and then the fourth rung, uh, Annie, is, is Marxist-Leninism, and the fifth rung is totalitarianism. Now, here's the problem. It's all headed towards the same end goal. It's a government control of every aspect of your life. Uh, we can see that in China, right? It's just totalitarian. 
So here's what my campaign represents. It represents an entirely new ladder, and it's about freedom, it's about liberty, and it's about we the people, and that's why we are going to win. Senator Graham aligns way too closely with Jamie Harrison on a bunch of issues. Uh, I am a stark contrast, and the people, and I share the the values of South Carolinians, uh, and they know it. And, and that's why we're going to win. It, 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 we, they want the contrast. They want the conservative guy that shares their values. And I am that candidate. Here's a wrap-up of our, of our campaign. Uh, Lindsey is too liberal, and he's been there too long. We, the people, deserve better. And that's the summation of, of what we're all about right now, heading into this two weeks prior to election time and everything else. Lindsay is too liberal. He's been there too long. We, the people, deserve better. And uh, we just need to get that word out. And we're doing our best. We're, we're, we're knocking on doors. We're going around. I have a, I just, I'm sitting in a parking lot right now because I just came from a printer. I've got 10,000 uh, flyers and 10,000 door hangers, and we've got 30,000 more on the way. Uh, We're headed to Columbia tomorrow for a rally in Columbia from 11 to 1. Uh, Michael's going to be speaking on the steps. Our volunteers are coming. We're going to have a little uh, area, camp out area around the truck here and hand out things to our volunteers from all over the state that are coming in for the day. So uh, we're on the road and we're we're going like crazy and we're going to win on June 9th. And we just encourage people to come out. Come on out to rally. Amy, you're coming to the rally tomorrow over in uh, Columbia? Oh, I can't. I got. Excuse me. My mother recently had a stroke, so I'm her primary caregiver. Uh-huh. So I have to be here. <laughs> Otherwise, I would be in a heartbeat up there. But I can't. My hands are full right here as it stands now. Yeah, I, I wish I, I have could. a 99 year old, 99 year old mother. She'll, mother-in-law. She'll be uh, 100 in June, June 13th. And uh, fortunately, my wife going to stay back and take care of her. But yeah, it's a it's a handful when you're taking care of mom. Uh, but uh, we're we're looking forward to June 9th with really anticipation. Yes, I uh, absolutely. You guys have to come down here to Beaufort County and do a rally down here so that people down here, you're right, it's very, very heavy retired military. And you want to get votes and people that are pissed off, especially mm-hmm. military men and women yes. that see what he has done and not done for the veterans and for active duty. You, you have to get down here to Beaufort County and make your presence known. We're 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 trying to get into the church down there, the Community Bible Church, uh, Baptist Church, Community Baptist Church. I've got a call in for there right now. We, we would get down this Sunday if necessary. But uh, I remember uh, fishing, uh, charter fishing down there in Hilton Head, and right next to the uh, Marine base there, and hearing the automatic weapons and stuff go off, took me back to my Vietnam days. Spent 28 months in Vietnam and military are awesome i love the military i love veterans and uh, i'm going to do my best to get get us down there uh hopefully this sunday to uh to get to meet the folks down there too well if you come and give me an email send me an email i'll shoot it out to our tea party people so that they can know that you're you're out here and you're down here okay we'll do that 
Absolutely. Uh, we're down to our last minute and a half of the interview with the two of you. It has been a lot of fun. Um, people can find you at LaPierreForSenate.com. There's a link on the show page here. So if people listening in the archives are actively listening right now, just click on the show page and you can go directly to your site and make a donation, learn more about you and see where you stand on all the issues. My, one last question I would have, though, Michael, is that that eight-point presentation that you had given to, um, uh, good Lord, uh, Duncan, do you have that where you can post it on your webpage for people to see? Oh, yeah. It's interesting. I um, Thank you for saying that because I never even thought about that. Um, it's a PowerPoint, so I don't know. I'm sure my communications director could figure out uh, how to Tom will get it done. out of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've got the presentation, and uh, I would love to share it with people. Uh, it's a, it's a, a really, um, it, it's, it's, well, it would it just met with. And let me say it this way: it met with such approval to a whole host of senators and congressmen that uh, I knew uh, that I had a, a winning ticket there. Uh, and this is, by the way, before. I, I knew I was running. Um, I, I didn't know I was running at the time, but the the presentation is the guts of, of my campaign and what we believe. So thank you for, for asking for that. We'll certainly make it available. Annie, I want to say Fantastic. one thing as we go. You, you, were mentioned church. you were mentioned church and stuff. If the evangelical church in South Carolina would just go vote, we wouldn't even have to have a campaign. But we removed light from the political arena. And we believe this lie of separation of church and state right up from the pit of hell. That's, that's a lie. We're supposed to be salt and light in our culture. If the evangelical church would go vote, that we wouldn't even have to spend a nickel on a campaign. Uh, we would elect righteous uh, Christian conservative people to office. And our country, when the righteous rule, everything's good. When the wicked are in power, there's groaning, the Bible says. And we're groaning right now uh, because we don't have the righteous in power that's uh, the Christian church has got to wake up to its role and its responsibility to our culture, to our nation, and to our children and our grandchildren. Well, that's a huge amen on that one. Michael and Jim, thank you for uh, joining us here. And uh, we'll be talking soon. And I, as I said, when I go to the voting booth with my husband, we will be clicking on you. Thank you so much. Michael LaPierre for Senate. Check it out. Michael and Jim, God bless, and thank you for the hard work you do. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. Thank you, Annie, so much. Uh, God bless. Please pray for us. Appreciate it. Oh, we will. All right, Michael LaPierre, check him out, LaPierre for Senate. Now, we've got to take a little bit of a break here. Um, I have to call in our next guest. So while we take a break, I start, <laughs> I'm going to do my little commercial and check it out, uh, Patriot Food. And we will be back shortly. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use to make a plan. To prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up 
food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. Yeah, hi, Kathy. A two-week food kit that cents. comes in a uh, rugged We're bringing you on live in just a few moments. I got a commercial on when you go to my special website, uh, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290. And you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. got American pride. We stand side by side. We talk from the backwoods to the big towns, we're American proud. It's too much truck driving pals. They put in the miles. All our farmers and friends who stay never in. With our soldiers in mind, they leave no one behind. We gotta keep our head bowed. We're American proud. The pride in our eyes There's no way to disguise No, you can't keep us down We're American proud It's too much truck driving pounds They put in the miles All our farmers and friends Who stay never in with our soldiers in mind, they leave no one behind. No one God, we keep our heads bowed. We're American proud. We're American proud. We're American proud. All right, and we're back. Mike Hill, you still with me? Yes, I am, Annie. All right. 
I forgot to mute my microphone when I called our next guest, but unfortunately, uh, she needs to reschedule so we don't have Kathy Barnett. So it's you and I, Mike, for now. If you want to talk about your campaign and what you're up to, that'd be great. Well, thank you, Annie. Um, I, I would like to talk about my campaign. It's doing great right now. I do have a primary. Uh, that primary date is August 18th. And what we have found is that um, I have a consistent conservative record, and the establishment doesn't like that. So they have convinced someone to run against me. But we feel pretty good about it. Um, they took a poll. The latest poll showed I was up by 31 points. Um, but that doesn't mean we take anything for granted. As soon as you do that, that's when you get yourself in trouble. But instead, what I do is continue to focus on those conservative issues of limited government, low taxes, personal freedom, and individual responsibility. Individual responsibility is something that we're not seeing. You know, our government keeps on throwing money at the people just to garner votes. So government's getting bigger and bigger and bigger with the Democrats in control. Look what they're doing to unemployment. It costs the, uh, the government so much money. I want to be where these taxes are going to be coming from. Oh, wait a minute, Mike. Didn't Joe Biden just recently say, I think either yesterday or today, that he wants to increase the income tax on everyone earning seven figures? So that means oh, yeah. lawyers, uh, family farms. And- are going to get taxed at the wazoo, where are the jobs going to be there then when he does that? And, and what Democrats don't seem to understand is basic economics, that when you raise taxes like that, um, it, first of all, it won't be enough to pay for everything that they want, to pay for this huge amount of debt that we've uh, materialized with this COVID-19 um, it is, it's astounding. So it will never be enough. You can't raise it high enough. And when you do that, you start affecting, again, the entire economy. You raise taxes on employers and on farmers, um, they won't be able to hire as many people because they have to use that money to pay taxes. So as, as soon as you're unable to hire a workforce, then your production decreases. And when production decreases, so does the economic engine that drives this nation. They don't seem to understand basic economics, which is uh, baffling to me. They don't seem to understand that when the Federal Reserve prints um, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and then gives it away, that that's not free money. It has to be paid back, and with interest and, and it is so much that, Annie, you and I, it'll never be paid back in our lifetime, but our children and our grandchildren will be paying for it. And that's just scandalous that we would put that kind of a burden on our children. You know, I, I'm hearing stories one after another um, where employers are calling their employees back, saying, hey, listen, we're opening up. Why don't you come on back to work? And the employees are saying, wait a minute, I'm getting more money with unemployment than you were paying me. So what, it's worthwhile for me just to stay home. Annie, I actually had a firsthand experience with that. 
I went to a local restaurant here Monday, so this past week. Um, they had just opened back up because in Florida, they say they, they can now operate at 50% capacity. So he, he opened up, we went in there, it was a great barbecue place. And um, the owner and I were talking and he told me he brought back most of his employees. He said, but he did have two employees who he told to stay home because their unemployment check was more than what he could pay them. He says, stay home until your unemployment checks run out, which are going to be in about, I think, three or four weeks. Once that runs out, then you can come back to work. But that, that's crazy, Annie, that he is competing for labor with our government. And, and it was not supposed to be that way at all. No, it wasn't. You know, it's supposed to be personal responsibility. And, you know, I, I have to laugh because when I go out, I'm below 65. I'm not going to say how far below, not too far, but somewhat. <laughs> but when I go out in public, I, unless someone requires me when I enter their establishment to wear a mask, I don't. But yet the people I see that violate the, the safe distancing and that don't turn around, because a lot of stores will have the markers on the floor to show you six feet apart, will not adhere to that. Some stores will have arrows that go down this aisle before you go over to this way to keep a distance between the people that are waiting to check out to people that are shopping. You see them violated over and over again. The people that are violating it are the ones wearing masks and gloves. Right. The rest of us, you know, we're smart. We'll use the hand sanitizer. We'll wash our hands. We'll do the safe distancing. Try to minimize how much we touch. I mean, I even carry alcohol wipes with me, so when I get a shopping cart, I wipe down the where you put your hands. But, you know, we're practicing smart stuff, but the people that are supposed to be personally responsible with all the government-mandated gears fail to do it. The second you rely on government, you get lazy. That's the truth. Annie, you know, um, the many of the stores here in Florida – already have that, that as you get your cart, they have the little wipes right there where you can wipe the uh, the handlebar. And in fact, I have mentioned that to a Walmart manager about 10 years ago. I said, hey, why don't you consider getting one of those wipes? You know, so we can, and then you can advertise that, hey, we're sanitary here, we're, we're clean, and that could be a marketing thing for you. And he just kind of looked at me with a quizzical look on his face and about three months later, Walmart was doing that in our area. And I'm not saying it was my idea. They may have had it in the works already, but I had suggested that very thing. And that's what we should have done with this entire COVID-19 response, Annie. We should have protected the vulnerable and it's acceptable. We should have practiced clean hygiene, which everyone should just do anyway and then go on with life as normal. And that's what I have done this entire time, Annie. I own a insurance agency. I employ four people. We have stayed open the entire time. But we, we did not shut down. I did not lay off any employees. And what we did do out of respect because so many people were letting this spirit of fear drive their actions, we did put a sign on the door that says if you prefer to uh, do the business over the phone or the internet or through email, 
No, here's our contact information to do that. Or if you want to drop off your payment in a Dropbox, do that. But even during that time when we were having a supposed lockdown, um, if people knocked on the door and said, hey, I have cash, I have to pay, uh, we were servicing those people. So we continued business as usual. And I think we need to get back to business as usual much sooner than later, Annie. Here in Florida, we're uh, just finishing up what they call phase one, going into phase two, which I even hate saying these words. The government allows you to do more with your business. I mean, the government has no constitutional authority to tell you what to do with your business in terms of when you can open and stay closed and so forth. But we've gone into phase two now, and uh, hopefully more and more people are going to rise up and say, hey, you have trampled on our freedoms. You've trampled on our civil and property rights, and we're not going to take it anymore. And the more people who do that, the quicker this whole thing will be over, because, Annie, it was a huge overreaction to a serious disease. COVID-19 is serious. It was a huge overreaction. But more people died last year from the common flu than COVID-19 this year. So we don't each year try to shut everything down when flu season comes. You just be smart. You practice clean hygiene. You protect the vulnerable. And you go on life as usual because, Annie, we are not going to rid this world of all diseases and, and stopping people from getting sick. It's just part of life. You know, I, looking at past pandemics we've had, like uh, the influenza outbreak in the 1920s, you know, we didn't have all this personal protection gear, and yet the United States was able to survive that. Um, we've had polio, measles, chickenpox, and these are things people can die from. And we've had flu outbreaks that had a higher death rate than what we are seeing here. Colds are highly contagious. The flu, any sort of a flu is highly contagious. And yet we've never shut down the nation before. This was, and we're finding out now that if people had already contact, contracted the virus, if they're exposed to the virus a second time, the virus is then dead. We're, they're doing this research now and finding, hey, you're going to have an immunity because the virus cannot replicate in your body. So the more we have people, um, what is it, a herd inoculation, uh, we become naturally immune to it, you know, we're not going to survive. And if we are not out there working and being able to provide for our families, we are not going to survive. And if government mandates our every move and action and tells us what to wear, when to wear it, and how to wear it, we are, as a nation, not going to survive. No, that's right, Annie. And again, they have no authority to do that. You know, I wrote a, read a very interesting article in The Blaze um, by a very smart young man named Daniel Horowitz. And he outlined six lies that have been going on during this entire um, scenario, this entire insanity. The first one he listed was the inflation 
of COVID-19 death numbers. And you know this, Annie, of how anyone who had any other kind of comorbidity and also was detected with the COVID-19 virus, that when they died, they listed it as COVID-19, even though they may have died from something else, um, heart failure or cancer or anything else. If they had the COVID virus, they counted it as the uh, uh, COVID death. But they found that because of a lawsuit in Colorado, it had to revise its death count down by 23%. So instead of having 1,150 deaths, they only had 878 because they, were, they had to distinguish between those who died solely because of the virus or those who died because they had the virus and there was some other co comorbidity. So if you think about that across the nation, if 25% had to be reduced because of the way that they are counting the numbers, instead of having this 100,000 death toll that was announced this morning and why the president wants the flags to fly at half mass, um, it would only be 75,000. And here in Florida, instead of 2,000, it would be like 1,500 that, that we are seeing. And then the second thing that he mentioned in the article was that states with longer lockdowns had worse results. So those who are keeping, and, and the ones who have the longer lockdowns are the Democrat-controlled administrations. They have worse results. And what they try to say as an excuse, well, if we didn't have these lockdowns, things would have been worse. That's not true. As you know, Annie, South Dakota never did have a lockdown at all. And per capita, their incidences of those who were infected with the virus and died from it was less than the, the uh, rest of the nation. And then we had an entire country, Sweden, which never did lockdown. And they were finding that their uh, recovery rate of 99.9% was pretty much what the rest of the world was seeing. So what they were telling us, what the media is telling us, is has been completely wrong and has driven this spirit of fear. Another thing that he mentioned was that outside nursing homes, the fatality rate never warranted such action, even if it would work. So if we take the um, nursing homes out of the equation, the numbers drop even more dramatically. And there was no reason for us to uh, um, shut down an entire economy. But then if you look at another uh, issue, that outside of New York, this is hardly worse than a bad flu season. And we've seen evidence of that. And I'll just mention two more real quickly here, uh, Annie, uh, that were in an article written by Daniel Horowitz um, on The Blaze. Um, excess deaths are from the lockdowns, not the virus. And we are seeing that in states like New York, New Jersey, and Maryland. But here's something that was shocking that was in an article, Annie, and it, it made my jaw drop. This is the last one. It says social distancing was invented by a high school kid and politicians, not scientists. 
And I said, what? What are they talking about? And when you read it, it was the brainchild of a high schooler's sociology paper in 2006 that was promoted by the Bush administration during the avian flu. It was what he had suggested a high school kid in a sociology paper said social distancing would work. And now here we are using that as a national policy. That's unbelievable. I, I'm, you're going to have to email me that, that link to the article. I definitely have to read that because one of the things I've been learning as we've been talking about this, that the virus is mainly centered around 10 states, all with links directly to New York, either through transportation hubs or direct connections like, such as New Jersey um, and other states. So the majority of these deaths are only in 10 states. Yet on the converse side, two states that did not go into lockdown, Montana and Wyoming, Wyoming has a total of 12 deaths statewide. Montana, oh, it's really horrible. It is so horrible. It's a total of 16 deaths statewide. So this lockdown has boomeranged, boomeranged back. Now, Governor McMaster here in South Carolina has been easing it uh, us up. Our total deaths in all of the state of South Carolina is only 416. Total cases is less than 10,000, 9,379. That is wow. absolutely amazing. So total cases in, y- in Montana, only 479. Wyoming didn't fare as well. They have 801, but that's for the entire state. Now, when you go over to New York, 353,623 cases. And who's in lockdown? New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland. You've got a whole cluster in the New England area because of the way the governors have handled it. Which what they did was, again, completely outside of their authority to do so. But let's look at some numbers in Florida, Annie. There are 21 million people in Florida. We are the third most populous state in the nation. California's first, Texas, then there's Florida, and then New York. So there's 21 million people. Of those 21 million people, most recently, we had 20,000 positive cases. And of those 20,000 positive cases, we've had 2,079 who have passed away. So you look at 2,000 people who have passed away out of a population of 21 million. Would you say that the reaction was an overreaction? Did we need to shut down our entire economy? Because of 2,000 people who passed away. Now, it's a tragedy. Each one of those lives, you know, were precious to someone and to families. So so not making light of that at all. At the same time, we did not need to shut down an entire economy because what we're seeing is that the cure was worse than the disease. Because what we're seeing an increase in those people who are unable to work and provide for their families, the, uh, the unemployment that was involved, 
that we're seeing an increase in depression, suicide, and, and child abuse. Uh, all of those are tragedies also. Well, I want to bring in my friend, Dr. Christina Jeffrey, but Chris, um, if you have a speaker on or, or if you have it playing somewhere else in the background, if you could lower the volume, because I'm getting an echo. Uh, if you're using a speakerphone, if you can, just use, use the regular handset to your phone. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to get an echo and we're going to be talking over ourselves. <laughs> so let's yeah, bring let on. Me... Uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, let me let me mute my. Yeah, mm-hmm. there we go. All right, I want to welcome on to the show. We've got as my co-host, as Florida State Representative Mike Hill, standing in for Curtis, uh, Dr. Christina Jeffrey. She's a dear friend of mine, a one-time roommate <laughs> for a South Carolina <laughs> Tea Party Coalition convention. Uh, Chris, you've got a new project that you're working on called U.S. Allegiance Institute where people can find at usallegianceinstitute.org. There's a link up on the show page that people can go and check it out. Tell us what you're doing here, because I think this is something that Mike may be very interested in, too, because he is a constitutionalist also. Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, so so we all are. Uh, we, I and seven or eight of my friends, uh, one of them is a resident of Florida, have started this research institute to explore the the uh, constitution and little known uh rules that are in the constitution such as uh who is eligible to be president apparently there's very little knowledge of that anymore it's it's dropped off of the off of the uh, k-12 uh radar and uh you know colleges and and uh, graduate schools don't teach the Constitution uh, very well anymore. So we thought we would do this in the private sector, and uh, and hopefully we can attract some attention. There are others who do similar work, but ours is going to be uh, just a little different, maybe uh, exploring some things that people have not paid much attention to. So we have actually have come up with a declaration of allegiance and uh, our declaration says well 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 let's see pulling pulling this up off of the website it, it explains you don't have it memorized we, shame on you oh heavens no I don't have it memorized I I have many things memorized uh, but you know you have to do that when you're real young you know I like I can I can uh, you know tell you about Juan that April and his shores Sota the devote of March has parted to the Rota, but um, uh, what I've learned lately no I can't memorize that. So this is our Declaration of Allegiance and stop me when you get bored but you'll get the you'll get the idea. We the undersigned hold the following statements to be true: the United States was founded as a constitutional republic. Come on. Yeah, my husband checking on me. Its basic law, the United States Constitution, is its supreme law, and any statute, regulation, presidential directive, or court ruling inconsistent therewith is unconstitutional and thus null and void. The Constitution's Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5, 
5 provides no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a resident within the United States. Although this constitutional provision has never been amended, its importance was confirmed in 1804 when the 12th Amendment extended its requirement to the office of the vice president. So, and then we go on uh, with some explanations for why why uh, believed it was important to have a natural-born citizen. Um, at the time of the founding, there was all kinds of, of intrigues going on in various different nations, trying to get, you know, trying to get your your um, yeah your choice of princesses into the right place so they could spy on England or Germany or what have you. We didn't want that for the United States. And if somebody is if somebody is born here of two citizen parents, then no other country can claim them. And they can't claim any other country. It's a natural law that a child born of two citizen parents on the soil of their parents' country is naturally a citizen of that country. And it was very easy for the founders to understand because they studied natural law. We are not studying natural law very much anymore in this country. So, Dr. Jeffrey, this is Representative Mike Hill. Let me ask you this question then. Based on that, does that mean that Senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz were not even eligible to run for president that past election? Well, I'm not sure Ted Cruz is eligible to be senator. I mean, have we... Do we know that, you know, he said he went to Canada and straightened everything out, but we haven't seen any documentation. You have to have been a senator. I mean, you, excuse me, you have to have been a citizen for nine years before you can be run for Senate. Marco Rubio is kind, of, a, is kind of an interesting case, very different from Ted Cruz. The, the purpose of sole allegiance is to have no interfering claims. And his family left Cuba. And, and the per, you know, similarly, the 14th Amendment, which has nothing to do with natural-born citizenship, but has this in common. The, the, the slaves had no other, they had no other country. Uh, the children born to slaves initially had no, you know, once they were freed, they didn't belong to anybody, so they didn't belong to any country. And so the 14th Amendment said that anyone born here without, within the jurisdiction of the United States was a citizen. Illegal aliens are not within the jurisdiction of the United States. And as proof, think about the fact that when somebody is accused of a capital crime, here comes their embassy to defend them. Right? That's they right. They might be an illegal alien, but they still have a country. Marco Rubio's parents didn't. They were they were severed from their Cuban um, allegiance. 
So, you know, if it's that, if something like that went to court, I, you know, I, I I wonder if he would be, you know, treated differently. But Ted Cruz, there's it's, there's he's got one citizen parent who may or may not have, you know, a lot of people when they move to Canada, they become landed immigrants. So we really don't know what her status was at the time of his birth without seeing documents. We need a vetting system. We need, you know, and it needs to be on the the responsibility of the candidate to show that they are eligible. Dr. Jeffrey, let me ask you this question also. Again, this is Florida State Representative Mike Hill. What influence did the Bible, um, Alexander de Tocqueville, and John Locke have on the creation of our Constitution? Well, they all believed in natural law. John John Locke influenced our our capitalist our cap our capitalist uh, society in 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 a very positive way. I don't know that he, you know, the the British the British concept of citizenship was and still is very different from ours. For one thing, if you are a citizen of the United States, you are an equal citizen. Well, I don't know. Assuming we don't have an oligarchy running Washington, all of us citizens are equal. We don't have any legal differences in our citizenship. The British have, in addition to citizenship, they've got subjectship. And they want to claim, they wanted to claim every child born within the empire that was a subject of Her Majesty, owed Her Majesty taxes, and had to serve in Her Majesty's Navy or Army if called to do so. In this country, you are a citizen, period. And, and the difference between natural born and citizen, the only difference is, if you're not a natural-born citizen, you can't run for president, and that's not really no, a that's not really a right. Nobody has a right to be president. It is a job qualification. You know, it's funny because you know, it's it's funny because what when we formed our nation, the idea of citizenship and not being a subject was novel. This never occurred before. Any other nation, um, there was different tiers of, of your, your, I'm trying to think of the, the correct word, Chris, uh, bail me out here. There was different levels. Uh, so, for example, you had a, a king who stood over the lords, the barons, and they stood over the people, their tenants, their serfs, their workers. And everyone had a different level. Even India had a caste system. Some sort of a caste system is what I'm thinking of. Uh, The United States has no caste system. I mean, socially, you know, mingling socially, yeah, you've got the Hollywood A-list and then you've got the rest of the rush schmucks. Um, (laughs) But as it comes to citizenship, we are all on an equal playing field, and that never right. occurred in history before. 
But, you know, I think our founding fathers, the, the people who came here initially and, you know, to Plymouth Rock, they were middle class. They they weren't they weren't refugee they weren't refugees from economic uh, suppression, but they were refugees from uh, from religious oppression. But I think they thought of themselves as citizens and were and when Parliament ignored, they realized that they really weren't. They were they were not citizens, and they wanted to be self self governing. They thought they were when they thought that Parliament, you know, that they had, you know, that they could appeal to Parliament and it would respond to them. And when it didn't, I think they said, we've got to have our own country. Yeah, it went even so far as some of our founding fathers went over to London attempting to petition Parliament, John Adams being one of them. And at each time, they were completely rebuffed. I'm trying to think of the one Mm -hmm. Lord that was on their side. Uh, and the name just kind of like escapes me, but very few British rulers, you know, members of the Parliament, of House of the Lords, or the Crown, were willing to even consider us anything but a third-class citizen or subject. Yeah, I know. Who, money, I know who you're talking. Not, about. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had we had an advocate, but the rest of the Parliament wasn't advocating for us. No, not at all. So this unique experiment, this these United States started something with citizenship, but yet we our founders also understood that our government could be influenced if we allow someone from a different country to influence our politics, which brought about the 14th, not didn't bring about the 14th Amendment, but brought about the necessary for the President of the United States to be a full U.S. naturalized citizen. Natural citizen, not naturalized. Well, not naturalized. (laughs) Natural, not naturalized. And, you know, not very many people really know much about this, but but I grew up with with a mother who was born to citizen parents. Her father was... um, uh, trying to get assets from Russia back into the coffers of International Harvester because he was a CPA working for International Harvester. Uh, actually, I, I don't know if he was working for International Harvester or, or for Price Waterhouse. But anyway, he was sent to Russia to deal with them and, and got nothing but nothing. And then went to Paris to the peace treaty and was um, advising Wilson. And meanwhile, my my grandmother was in Scotland with her parents uh, giving birth to my mother. Well, when my mother found out that she couldn't be president, she was just appalled. She was really not happy about that. And we heard about it all of our all of our lives. And then when my sister announced she was going to run for Congress, my mother said, well, why would you do that? And we're all, what? We thought you wanted to be president, Mom. <laughs> But but she did not she could not understand that she would say if you're born in a if you're born in a stable you're not a horse she, she had never had this this explained to her and of course as a child I had no idea what she was talking about I just thought my mother really wanted to be president. Well, I'm sorry. 
in a lot of countries, if you are an American citizen and then your parents are American citizens and you're born in a different country than the United States, um, you don't become automatically a citizen of that country because the parents were not citizens. So why would we not do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. naturalization is tied up with treaties because that country could claim a baby born in that country. If we didn't have a treaty with the country, there might be a problem about Americans getting their children home. So we do have these treaties, and as soon as a baby is born in a foreign country to American citizens, the American citizens go to the embassy, and the embassy provides them with paperwork making that baby a citizen back to the day it was born. However, if the parents don't go and do that, then that baby um, remains an alien. Now, you know, that didn't, no. probably didn't wouldn't have, that probably didn't happen to Ted Cruz because people go back and forth across the the US Canadian border all the time. So I think they honestly had no idea that that he wasn't automatically it's so funny because he's a constitutional lawyer, right? That he wasn't automatically mm-hmm. uh made a citizen when he was born. But if they did, yeah, you know, if they did and I think he went back to Canada in 2015 to get that straightened out, but he never told us or showed us any of the paperwork. Now, now this Dr. Jeffrey, you, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. Dr. Jeffrey, earlier this year, um, you did a testimony before a House committee in February of this year. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Uh huh. On the on on teaching the Constitution in the colleges. Well, t- tell us a little bit about that, and, and what was the result after you did your your testimony there? Well, we we got some some positive feedback. Uh, there are members of the legislature that are very concerned about this, but you know, Clemson and USC are very powerful institutions. And they are, yeah, they they do not want to. This, this is this is my opinion, but my opinion as a longtime professor of political science and a watcher of things that go on in higher ed, and also as the president of the South Carolina Association of Scholars, which is very concerned about this. They don't want to be seen as. Uh, a southern institution that is influenced by the Bible Belt and and conservatives and rednecks and you know all the riffraff that we just surround ourselves with in the South. I speak um, tongue in cheek because, of course, we are the best people that there are. But they do not, right. they they do not want to they do not want to do that and 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 they're making a kind of a ridiculous ridiculous arguments against this. Clemson wants to just, they want to teach the Constitution in uh, a one-hour video in a a, um, freshman orientation class. Yeah, yeah, we've done the Constitution. Okay, moving right on. Uh, Now we'll talk about uh, sororities and fraternities. 
we did pass here. I don't know how it's going to end up. Well, we did pass a law here in South Carolina that the founding documents must be uh, taught. It was originally for just higher education, but now it phased into high school. So, but there's nothing in the legislation that tells how much of it and how much time should be spent on it. Is there? Yeah, and the, you know the law, the law goes back. I, I think to nineteen nineteen fifties. No, maybe originally, maybe originally in the nineteen twenties. I mean, it's an old, old law. And some of the institutions have have never obeyed it. And wasn't it the University of South Carolina, I may have been about six or seven years ago, uh, wanted to teach a three-day course on how to become a lesbian. This is what University of South Carolina and Clemson does. Well, I did not know that the University of South Carolina was doing that. The teacher of it, uh, was a was teaching at Coastal Carolina for a while. The teacher who brought in the 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 lesbian performance act, how to be a lesbian in ten days or whatever. She moved to Coastal. I think she was in the English department. Moved to Coast. Moved to USC Upstate, and brought in that that show. The legislature uh, put its foot down, and USC Upstate. I think had to had to repay the legislature for the amount of money that was spent on that on that program. And well, that was one of the few times that every single conservative group in the state of South Carolina united against that, and there was a flood of calls and letters and emails into all the state uh, representatives. Uh, to have that withdrawn. So, you know, that was one of the times I've seen every single group basically unite in this. Yeah, come on. This is not what our tax dollars are for. This is not what we're sending our kids to school for. We want them to come at the other end with skills to help them for the rest of their life, to build a family and career. That's not what school is for, to teach them, you know, sexual immorality. Well, um, not everybody. Not everybody agreed. Wofford College put it on <laughs> as a show of solidarity. <laughs> it's, 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 it, the the uh, what has happened to our colleges and universities is a great example of of what um, Marcuse called uh, the long march through the institutions, and and. Education was really the first target of that march. And the University of Columbia University, which received the the refugees, the refugee uh, professors from Germany who were communists and went to Columbia University, the uh, first thing first thing those people did to to uh, show their appreciation to America for saving them from the Nazis was to Target our education system and try to um, undermine it with cultural Marxism, and they've been extremely successful. And the relationship between Columbia University and the University of South Carolina goes 
back to that, the education schools. That Columbia's education school, USC's education school has has had close uh, relations, and that's why Bill Ayers has been to USC uh, over a dozen times with great big speaking fees to talk to the the graduates or the the student the, the students. I think the graduate students at USC, but I don't know that for sure. It could be all of them. And Bill Ayers, of course, well, is famous for killing a policeman in New York City. So I guess you probably know about Bill Ayers, huh, Annie? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Listen, yeah. we're last and, and on 9-11, he was, he, was, he was quoted on 9-11, he was quoted as somebody said, well, do you have any regrets about shooting a policeman? And he said on 9-11, that day. He, he he's sorry that he hadn't been able to kill anymore. Well, Chris, we're down to our last eight minutes now. One question I want to ask, because we're talking about natural-born citizens, do we have something to fear? Because China had that tourism bit where the women would come over, book a hotel, and then have their children here on American soil, and then go back home to China to raise them. Is this something we are going to see in the future uh, another way to influence our our politics. Any, we don't have to. We do not have to give citizenship to every baby that's born in this country. That is not what the that's not what the Fourteenth Amendment says. And this is just something that the State Department has st- started doing. I think in the eighties, and nobody has stopped it. But it's ridiculous. It should not be done, especially now with China. But you know, it's not, that's not the only thing. That's not the that that's relatively new. When I was in charge of the international students at the University of Alabama, I learned that that California hospitals were sending buses down to Mexico to bring back pregnant women and and let them give birth, and then the hospital would get the the Medicaid money. I also learned that schools in Texas were sending buses down to Mexico to pick up Mexican children and bring them back to the schools in Texas so they could get more money from the state. Uh, We we could do a better job of policing our borders and guarding our laws. The funny thing is, Mike, I'm going to mention this, that Ever since this COVID virus broke out, we no longer hear about open the borders. Suddenly, everyone's a little bit afraid about what is coming into the country and where it's coming from. Isn't that amazing, Mike? It is amazing. Pat, that's utterly amazing, but I also think it's short-lived because once the recognition, the realization that this virus is not going to kill as much of the population as they thought – the Democrats are going to go right back to wanting this illegal immigration coming in and then give them the right to vote so that they can remain in power. Yeah, there's a lot of money to be made um, in in circumventing U.S. laws and and restrictions, and there and and we are not doing a good job. We're not doing a good job of enforcing law at any level. Truly, we're not. And if we lose, if we lose our our 
our right to be to be governed by laws and not by you know powerful men and women, we lose a lot. And that was the point of forming this as a republic. It's not a democracy, folks. So every time you hear someone say this democracy, scream at the top of your head and say it's our republic, you idiot. Let's keep it that way. Well, yeah. But instead, and, and, and we've got to <laughs> we yell at the at the TV when we hear they hacked our democracy. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, we allowed the Pelosi's, the AOC's, the Lindsey Graham's to continually brainwash us into thinking this is a democracy, a mob rule. That's what democracy is, whereas republic is a mobocracy. Live under the rule of law, the Constitution being the foundation of that rule of law, and yet we find the Constitution constantly being violated, you know, telling us what type of toilets to buy. Just please tell me, Chris, where it is in the Constitution, government has the right to dictate to us what type of light bulb to buy, what type of the toilet to buy, when to wear masks, when to not wear masks. When has government become not a republic anymore? Well, it's easier to be a to you know to be the enforcer in chief than it is to to make sure that people have rights and the rights are respected. That that uh, the Constitution is respected, that the Constitution is followed. Uh, I mean, Gen, Gen Generation Z laughs when you mention the Constitution. They they simply well, Chris, are not taught. It, it is not taught. No, it's not, and that's unfortunate. And hopefully, now that people are being homeschooled, the parents are finally seeing how much they're not being taught. Uh, to their kids, and maybe we'll see a new generation arise out of because of this virus. A new generation that finally understands its rights and liberties, because so much has been taken away from us. Chris, it's always fun to talk to you. Let me know when you come down here, and we'll get together and have a cocktail together, like we used to. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And 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 not one of these not one of these uh, virus cocktails where you just have a drink on Zoom. <laughs> A real life in a bar cocktail. <laughs> Not with a napkin. I think that's that in the Constitution. <laughs> well, people can find you now at org. Chris, love you dearly, and we'll be talking soon. As a matter of fact, there is Thank another host dear. in our chat room. Tim Tapp is asking for your information because he wants you on his show. So with your permission, I'll send him over your info so he can call you and book you on there. So this will then be your friend second of yours interview. Talk is a friend about. of mine. <laughs> you hear that, Tim? All right, Chris. I'll be talking to you later. Have a great weekend. God bless and you. Remember Thank Memorial you very Day. Very much. Yes, indeed. Okay. God bless you. Bye bye. Dr. Christina Jeffrey. Uh, you can find her at USAllegianceInstitute.org. She is a sweetheart, Mike. Uh, Mike, I want to thank you for being my co-host, standing in for Curtis. Um, hopefully, Curtis will get everything worked out and be back home this weekend, uh, this next weekend. But we've got Memorial Day here on Monday. Um, my father was a World War II veteran. Both of my grandfathers, who were immigrants, became American citizens, also served in the U.S. Army around the time of World War I. Um, my uncle, 
uh, was a Korean War vet, uh, is a Korean War vet, I should say. So, you know, we got to remember the men in, that they've worked with, now the men and women uh, that we remember on Monday. Michael, thank you so much. People can find you on your website, which is? VoteMikeHill.com. VoteMikeHill.com. I was trying to find up on uh, Twitter, and you used to be Mike Hill FL. I couldn't find you today. Oh, I closed that Twitter account about a year ago. Ah, so you got to send me what the new one is, okay? Mike, love you, dear, and thank you for standing in here. Oh, my pleasure, Annie. Thank you for having me. All right. God bless, and enjoy the, the holiday weekend, and remember Memorial Day. Mike Hill, Amen. you can find a boat, Mike Vote Mike Hill, uh, find it up there on his website and give him some support. I want to thank everyone that joined us over here in the chat room on Blog Talk Radio, those that have been um, over here on Facebook. Oh, and Fred is posting on Facebook, can you imagine the baby boom coming in nine months? Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. Oh, man, it's going to be absolutely amazing. A lot of christenings are going to be coming up. All right, want to thank those that are listening over on Facebook, Restream, everywhere else that we are. Also, catch us up on iHeartRadio. Just search for Sunsets Talk up on iHeartRadio. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and remember the fallen on Memorial Day. Until then, I thank you for joining us. And we'll be seeing you here next Friday, same bat time, same bat station. Until then, good night.